examination of the galaxies of space, images begin to appear. Images of strange and powerful forces. But of all the forces in the universe, the two most powerful, Hulk Hogan and the Ultimate Warrior, prepare to explode. Champion versus champion. Title for title. It's the ultimate challenge. It's WrestleMania! Hello everyone and welcome to episode 156 of Squared Circle Gazette Radio. I am Liam O'Rourke alongside absolutely nobody here at the Oaken Table for obvious reasons, uh, but I am not riding solo on today's show. Uh, before we get into uh, today's show, as well as what we've got coming up for the next couple of weeks, I want to take a second to thank everybody for listening. Uh, it's been a while, obviously, since we've recorded our last show, but I'm glad to bring it back to you and I hope that everybody listening, the loyal listeners out there, are doing very well. Uh, just to get the plugs out of the way before we get into our conversation today, for any first timers, you can go to squaredcirclegazette.com if you like this show. Check out the archives, check out the Monday Night War timeline series, which is going to be uh, quite a bit similar to what we're going to be doing today. Uh, like us on the Facebook page at facebook.com slash scgradio. And while we're on the plugs, you can, of course... Purchase my book, Crazy Like a Fox, The Definitive Chronicle of Brian Pillman, 20 years later, uh, winner of the 2017 Wrestling Observer Award for Book of the Year at Amazon.co.uk or Amazon.com. And uh, now that that's out of the way, I would like to get to our topic and I would like to get to our very special guest. Uh, I'm going to be introducing somebody new to the SCG circle today, a good friend of mine from the United States. And it's no exaggeration to say that this podcast would not have existed for the last five years if it wasn't for the gentleman I'm going to be speaking with today. There is no SCG radio without a show that me and Carl Jones used to listen to in the mid-2000s called Sunday Night Submission. Uh, This man was the co-host of that show. Currently, he is the co-host of the Top Rope Nation podcast alongside my good friends Ryan Drosty and Justin Joint that you can check out and I'd very much recommend to listeners of this show. We are going to be talking 1990 in the WWF for the next couple of weeks, and I am going now to throw to the conversation I had with the one and only Kyle Ross. So I hope that everybody enjoys this. Leave your feedback, leave your thoughts on the Facebook page, uh, and like I said, enjoy. Joining me now, for the first time here on Squared Circle Gazette Radio, it is an honor and a pleasure to uh, introduce a man that I've known for a long time. So, Kyle Ross, over in Cleveland, Ohio. How the hell are you? Liam, it is a pleasure. Finally, you and I do a podcast together. And uh, as I'm looking out the window, I got to tell you, probably the best weather we've had here in Cleveland all year. So I couldn't think of a better time to uh, sit indoors and talk about 1990 WWF. Uh, <laughs> what a what a you know what a topic this is going to be because as we were talking about just before we started recording here, 1990, a bit of an odd year to choose for a discussion. This is going to be a three part series. Uh, today we're going to be looking at the build to and the execution of WrestleMania six and the crowning of the Ultimate Warrior. You kind of jumped on board with this idea for to talk about 1990 quite a bit, which I and to be honest, I did not expect there to be so much material on this topic when this began. So, uh, is there anything about this year that particularly kind of just grabs you straight off the top? I too was surprised by how dense the material was once we started researching it because my view of 1990, like a lot of people's, is well, they went to Warrior, it didn't work. They went back to Hogan. That's it. And it's just kind of like an open and shut case. As we're going to get into, especially here in part one, it's not that open and shut, I don't think. I don't know if that's the right 
phraseology to use, open and shut. But, you know, there there were some definite warning signs that maybe what they were doing wasn't working. Maybe alarm bells should have gone off earlier about the Ultimate Warrior as a top guy. But at the same time, I think there's this issue of, well, what else is there? You were watching in 1990, which is something that I can't say myself. I came aboard the wrestling train a couple of years after this. And for whatever reason, uh, I've always had kind of an interest in this year because the first wrestling videotape, if you remember them, that I ever bought was SummerSlam 1990 because I was roped in by the allure of the double main event. Yeah, um, I remember. um, So I was a big wrestling fan. Uh, at this point, obviously, um, despite the fact that the year isn't that good, I didn't, that didn't matter to me when I was nine and, you know, I turned 10 this year, but, um, WrestleMania six, that was a hot videotape at the local video store. I remember I had to get on a waiting list to rent it Oh and wow. it was my buddy who was ahead of me on the list. Cause I had, I went up to the video store to put my name down because it wasn't even out yet. I was like, Hey, I want to get WrestleMania six when it comes in. And they're like, well, somebody else already has their name down. They're going to get it first before you. I'm like, damn it. Oh. And then I was like, I, I gave the person. I'm like, it's not this person, is it? And they're like, uh, as a matter of fact, yeah, that's that's who it is. <laughs> so, yeah, it was, it was a hot rental. So you wouldn't have known that it was anything close to a beginning of the undoing, if you think that's what it, it truly is, uh, based on Falls Video Store rentals in uh, you know May of 1990. In Olmsted Falls, Ohio. <laughs> so getting to the topic here, because and and the way that we're going to tackle this, we have an overarching kind of thesis. Like we said, was this year a necessary sacrifice? Was it the beginning of the undoing that comes in '91 and '92? And we're breaking this up in three chunks. Kyle, you kind of uh, decided the uh, the delineations of the times here. Yeah, uh, I mean, and they make a lot of sense when you're going through the notes. So we're obviously, as you said already, looking at the build the mania here in part one. Part two will be mania through SummerSlam. Part three will be post-SummerSlam, and the build to WrestleMania 7, I think, will be going a little bit into 1991, uh, if not all the way to Mania, at least with broad strokes. I, I think it's it's hard to tell the story of the end of 1990 without looking at what they did main event-wise at WrestleMania 7 with Sergeant Slaughter. Couldn't agree more. So just to kind of get into that overarching thesis that we were talking about, 1990, a fascinating year in the company, in, in my own personal perspective. In saying that, I do feel the need to identify the irony in the statement straight away. On screen, perhaps the most boring and uninspired year of actual television that Vince had churned out since the national expansion uh, in 1984. But behind the scenes, there's a lot of stuff going on. The, uh, the ebb and flow, the nuts and bolts, the machinations of what's actually happening are pretty fascinating. I will obviously give credit to Dave Meltzer of the Wrestling Observer Newsletter for uh, some of the notes that we're going to read today. Um, But obviously, the overarching theme of this is that by the start of 1990, it feels that Vince is kind of getting a bit complacent as the king of the hill. The NWA uh, is so far behind in the mainstream battle by this point that they're a mess with leadership issues under Jim Hurd. And without saying they pose no threat necessarily, they really, they, they were, the gap was widened and it was wide enough that they had the leeway to give the warrior a shot. And that kind of felt like not only was that uh, an idea that they you know, perhaps could go down, it kind of felt like an idea that was worth going down because Hogan felt like he was getting stale by the end of 1989. And the kind of the, the mediocre run towards Mania 6 and the disappointment of the show itself kind of leaves them in a situation where the warrior unfortunately there's a real lack of heart behind the warrior push they still kind of bank on hogan 
And I've always kind of had the theory that, that when you have a superhero top guy baby face, they're only as strong as the strongest heel that they can work with. And when you've got two guys, like an Austin and a Rock or a Warrior and a Hogan, you, you need an, an even stronger surplus of heels. Uh, otherwise, it leads to a major gap in the balance. And it did here in 1990, a major gap in the balance that led to numbers plummeting. Warrior disappoints at the gate all year long. Hogan comes back, and as we'll discuss, as well at first, but then things go down too. The decision to go with Sergeant Slaughter as the top heel at the end of the year, the lead guy for WrestleMania 7, was Vince's first big desperation move since the national expansion. And I was trying to think of this, Carl. I can't think of anything that comes close to the level of desperation that they did here with Slaughter and, and, and kind of exploiting the Gulf War. Okay, so at least in the Mania era, it is the first main event misfire. Right. In my opinion, with Sergeant Slaughter. If you look at, no matter what you think personally of the main events of the first six WrestleManias, they all worked. Could some of them have been done better? Yeah. But the big picture story they were telling was all correct. The, the person who came out of those six WrestleManias as champion was the correct call, largely. I, yeah. I think, actually, universally was. Now, in terms of, like, just bad main event decision-making, like, you know, you know, as far as Vince being wrong about something in the main events, the only other things I could think about was Ken Patera's return in 87. Oh, That was oh, a disaster. <laughs> and the machines in 86. Because that was a main event gimmick and sucked. And was kind of racist with them, you know, saying Nissan and Honda. <laughs> Is that being their Japanese talk? That's really offensive with 2020 years, but whatever. At the same time, though, Ken Patera nor the machines were really in the position that Sergeant Slaughter was to anchor a huge event like WrestleMania. Right. And they punted pretty quickly on those other two, Patera and the machines. They, they realized that, eh, this sucks, we're just going to get away from it. Whereas Slaughter, they were, because of the stuff we're going to get into, they had no choice but to be all in, really, at that point. And uh, it brought them a lot of negative press. And it's something I would call an unforced error. Absolutely. And, and Vince kind of had, the impression I have at the time is that Vince kind of feels like he's almost Teflon enough to the media and kind of beyond criticism when this kind of comes about. And that that's a massive misread. And, and it, I don't think... He goes to that extreme measure of desperation uh, in 1991, if 1990, as we're going to talk about, isn't such a complete burst. Now, at the same time as all of this is going on, as we're going to talk about on these uh, on this series, Vince starts the WBF, the World Bodybuilding Federation, in 1990, at a time when steroids are starting to become kind of a public hot-button issue, especially in sports. And, uh, and the connection to wrestling is, is obvious to anybody with a pair of eyes. So that kind of... Uh, th these things are kind of lining up for an imperfect storm, as it were. So... What I kind of would like to throw to you here, Carl, obviously the idea of the overall question about whether this was, was a necessary sacrifice at the beginning of the undoing, and whether the issue of WrestleMania 7, which is really the move back to Hogan, was an inevitable one. Okay. So your thesis question you've got here. A necessary sacrifice or the beginning of the undoing, 1990. Again, this is kind of a chicken shit answer, but I'm going to give it anyway. I think necessary sacrifice is kind of, it's easy to say in retrospect, but it's sort of loaded language. I, I think the decision to try the warrior 
was a necessary one. I, I call it not a necessary sacrifice, but a necessary try. Because I know we're going to get into this in just a few minutes. Hogan was really stale for the first time in late 89. And the Warrior did feel like, for the first time, a guy who could step in and be a successor in that top babyface role. The WWF had not had that before. And they didn't need to have it before because Hogan was so hot. So I'm going to call it a necessary try. As for Hogan, whether or not it was inevitable, having listened to people like Bruce Pritchard talk about this, you get the feeling that it was. That Vince was like, oh, well, we'll try Warrior, but if it doesn't work, we can always go back to Hogan. That kind of seemed to be the sentiment behind the scenes. Now, as far as being inevitable, if you do the Warriors title run better, it doesn't have to be inevitable. Ultimately, pardon the pun, I think it was the correct call uh, because, as we're going to talk about, extensively, Warrior had shortcomings that Hogan didn't. Oh, in the it was very he, obvious. He just, yeah, he just was not as good in the top babyface role as Hulk Hogan was. And let's be fair. Do you know who else wasn't as good in the top babyface role compared to Hulk Hogan? Virtually everyone in the history of the company besides Stone Cold Steve Austin and The Rock. (laughs) So, I mean, that's a really hard place to step into. So I don't think we should, again, just dismiss everything the Ultimate Warrior ever did and call him a complete failure, um, although his run was not good, because those were big shoes to fill. Uh, For the WBF and Sergeant Slaughter... I kind of tipped my hand already. Those are obvious things that should not have been done. Unforced errors that really did hurt the company. The WWF, who knows how much that took Vince away creatively. And that's why the company was kind of stagnant throughout 1990. Slaughter, again, like you said, is just an approach, an angle that should not have been done. People that say, oh, Iron Sheik, Iron Sheik. That was years removed from the Iran hostage situation. Right. And times had changed by 1991 in this country where exploiting, you know, nationalism wasn't as acceptable as it would have been in the early 80s. And the fact that it was on an ongoing issue made it even worse. And it just brought negative press on the company that they did not need. No, absolutely not. And, and as we're going to get to in the, probably in part three, the impact that has on the company is, is so far reaching and lasts so long. So 1990 NWA and in oh, terms yeah. of where they were at in regards uh, to WWF at this period, I did think that the NWA had a chance late 89, early 90 to transform the promotion. But once they do the sting turn and he gets hurt, yeah, and they're caught with Flair and Luger in sort of a spot where you don't know how to book yourself out of a hole because you want Sting to beat Flair, and you just turned Flair, but you've also just turned Luger babyface, and him coming up short kills him, and you've booked yourself in a corner. Once they got into that spot, the NWA really did just fall south big time and in a hurry too and the thing was flair in the position of the world champion and the booker at the same time was always going to you know he's getting pressure on one side he's about to turn 40 as i remember so he yeah, was kind he of turned four, he turned 40 the day of the lex luger match at wrestle war 
there we go. So that's right. So he he ends up in that kind of pressure situation of you know your your your, your clock is ticking in that role, and he's getting so much pressure from Herd, and he's having to deal with Herd, and he's clearly getting fed up there too. And he, again, he throws that away in February. So uh, and and creatively, and we can even get to this as we kind of go along too. But Ole Anderson steps in, and then it just it really goes to shit. Yeah, and this is a different podcast here, so we won't go too far down this rabbit hole. But I have come to believe. The solution for the NWA as the 90s began was Flair staying as a babyface, losing the title to a heel Lex Luger, and then you can kind of evaluate Sting as the future of the company against Flair, who's also a babyface, and who's really going to be the more popular guy with your fan base at that moment in time. I think that's, that's just my opinion. What I've come to believe, you know, I've saw a lot of talk on Twitter a couple of weeks ago about Lex Luger, just you know, kind of, uh, was he better than he's given credit for? And I think 1989 Lex Luger was as a heel, absolutely he is. Yeah, was the peak of his career, and I thought if you were going to save him, that was the time to do it. You know, there's the story of, you know, how he never won it as a babyface the year prior. And I think you can redeem him as a draw, potentially, in the eyes of the fans, if you put the title on him as a heel in 1989. And, you know, Ric Flair, I know he loved working heel, but I'm telling you what, man, by 1987, nobody wanted to boo that guy. And no. somebody stand up to him and say, Rick, I'm sorry, I like to do things too, but people love you. You can't be a heel anymore. I couldn't agree more. And again, the timing of things getting messed up when Sting goes down yeah, in kill. February. I mean, and again, with what you know, with Warrior about to become the champion, I always the kind of the guys who were kind of identified as almost the futures of the company supposed to be crowned at the start of 1990, and Sting it happening to Sting on a delay. The timing really hurt, I think, for Sting. You took the words out of my mouth where I wanted to take that conversation next because it actually is important vis-a-vis WWF. The plan was for Sting to win at WrestleWar. Yeah. He winds up winning it at the Great American Bash. What happens in between WrestleWar and the Great American Bash? The Warrior gets crowned. Yes. So, I know you said you weren't watching at the time, but could you see how, to a casual eye, that the guy who gets crowned second, it kind of seems like they're copying. I, 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 that's exactly what I, I remember at the time. Again, the video store, what a, what, a, what a tried and tested thing this was for me in the early 90s. When I would rent these videos and I kind of was putting the timeline together in my head about when these things actually happened and you're becoming a fan and you're trying to develop a bit of an, a timeline of, okay, so this happens here and this is where her, you know the mega powers explode here. That was kind of the impression I had. Oh, this is their ultimate warrior. Yeah, and I think there's probably a lot of people who have that now. There's some people who are going to stick their nose up and say, oh, no, Warrior was never like Sting. But I think to a casual eye, that's probably especially, how it appeared. Yeah, especially kids, which, again, I wasn't yeah, when I was looking at this, I, I that's the kiddie mindset that I had at the time was that's what I thought. I just thought that, that Sting... He's uh, the, the time, it's just the timing of it. The time, it's, it's, it's very unfortunate for Sting because there, and, and truthfully, it felt like the peak of I don't want to say the peak of Sting had passed. Uh, again, we are going down the rabbit hole in the end, but 
I do think that kind of if he'd if he'd have got it in February, I think things would look a lot different. But again, maybe and and the decision probably should not have been to turn for a heel. No, but you know what's interesting, and I guess I really haven't thought of it until we had this conversation. Is that sort of abrupt flare heel turn on Sting? I wonder if they were looking at the WWF and saying, "Hey, we've got to get our title on Sting before WWF gets it on Warrior," because it was mm. very obvious at the turn of the year that WWF and we're going to get into this right now was going to put the title on warrior. Yeah. Yeah. Big time, big time. So I think Steve's kind of forward towards the timeline here of events. We got kind of a couple of things that bleed over from 1989 that affect the WWF kind of going into the new year. So at the end of 89, Vince has kind of undertaken a number of measures to kind of cut out the middlemen in his businesses. One of which we're going to talk about here. One of which comes uh, at the end. Um, Vince was having problems with viewers' choice on Request TV, who are the pay-per-view syndicators uh, to the local cable companies. Uh, and this actually happened a couple of times. I remember this happened in 2001 as well, where Vince was having issues with uh, pay-per-view providers. He didn't want them taking a percentage that he didn't feel they deserved, or, or more accurately, that he wanted himself. Uh, and he was hoping that he could kind of go straight to the cable companies to air the shows and cut out viewers' choice and requests to the syndicators um, in order to kind of get their share. So it's one of these typical games of chicken that Vince will play sometimes, threatening to take away the pay-per-views and therefore the pay-per-view money for the for the syndicators in hopes that he'll get a better deal with a more favorable percentage um things aren't kind of looking good as we enter 1990 right before the the famed no holds bold no holds barred the match the movie <laughs> pay-per-view that they did okay a, sh- a surefire classic not on the network by the way no it isn't one of the few indeed uh, mean Gene reads a telegram on the air during Hogan's promo saying that several companies won't be carrying the Royal Rumble, teases they won't be carrying WrestleMania as well, uh, and the announcers, which is Jesse and Vince, urge the fans to call the companies uh, directly to order them to carry the show. They even had Jesse Ventura, apparently, which we, we, we can't see, uh, talking about how he fought to defend his country and how it's un-American for the cable companies not to allow people the freedom to buy the pay-per-view of their choice. Wow, yes. Gotta, gotta Jesse si- yeah, Jesse signed up for the military to stop the spread of communism and to continue the spread of pay-per-view. That was actually <laughs> unknown. I know you being from the UK, you may not have known American military doctrine, but that's what it was at the time. Oh, that, see, that's, that's why we got you here, Kyle. Yeah, and for the record, uh, the reason that we don't know or we can't confirm that he said that, and I assume that's from Meltzer, yeah, the Ventura yeah. thing. Okay, I went back and watched the match, the Hogan Beefcake Savage Zeus match, which is on the network. The No Holds Barred, the match, the movie pay-per-view is not on the network, but that match is on the pay-per-view. You can watch it on the uh, WWE home video section on the first Super Tape. It is the main event of Super Tape 1. It seemed that they cut the commentary off right as he was about to say it. Really? Interesting. Yes, because... They, 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 there was some banter mid-match from Vince and Jesse on the issue uh, of, you know, urging fans to call up and complain. And then Jesse, post-match, when Hogan and Beefcake were posing, he started to go into a soliloquy, and it was definitely cut off. Like, he wasn't done talking <laughs> when they shot the videotape back to uh, Sean Mooney or Mean Gene or whoever was hosting that particular uh, tape. 
Well, whatever he said that, that is apparently not fit for ears in the modern day, apparently it wasn't fit for ears for a, a trade journal called Broadcasting Magazine, uh, who had an article on the WF's antics at this pay-per-view, quoting folks in the cable industry who said it was one of the most unprofessional, no, sorry, the most unprofessional thing done on cable TV in the last 15 years. So apparently they did a, a better job of getting the cable industry pissed off than they actually did getting the wrestling fans to write in and complain uh, about people not carrying the Royal Rumble. This actually continues into 1990. They even have Arnold Scarland popping in to primetime wrestling to uh, chew the fat with Gorilla Monsoon and uh, urge fans to write in, which a fine clip. Yes, we both found this. Um, it was funny because I texted you. I'm like, where can you find this? And before you had a chance to respond, I found it. And you sent me the same clip I was watching. Uh, this was an odd thing. Arnold Scarland randomly wandering onto the primetime stage. Like he's on the front line. Bob, yeah. And then Gorilla being like, hey, Arnold, how about these pay-per-view companies? It was like a really bad Seinfeld bit. <laughs> Almost, you know? Because it, it was just, it was so unnatural. Uh, I think the reason they had Scald even come on is like Bobby Heenan had been making fun of him the week prior. Yeah, that's good stuff. And so that's why he comes on. And the girl's like, well, enough about the weasel, Arnie. How about these pay-per-view companies, huh? And what makes me think, Jesse, you know, I have no reason to think Meltzer would obviously make that up, the Ventura quote. But Gorilla on primetime, and this was a different clip I watched, was very much into the Bill of Rights and quoting that. Yeah. Uh, you know, as far as <laughs> with this pay-per-view situation, it, it was very interesting. It did lead uh, to a 13th Amendment joke for Bobby Heenan, which was moderately amusing. But, um, <laughs> yeah, there were a lot of these, like, ridiculous, uh, you know, constitutional rights type deals that WWE programming was using to talk about the cable companies. Which is just like Vince 101. Yes, <laughs> yes, yeah. Whatever happened to the First Amendment? You know, I've been able to do stuff like that. You know, it was it was like you know when Shawn Michaels comes out to answer Bret Hart's problem and at WrestleMania 13, it's oh, like yeah. we have a thing called the Constitution, that and then he proceeds to like tell like Bret love it or leave it, <laughs> even though he Shawn had just got done waxing poetic about the First Amendment, which makes yeah. no sense. Hey, it's 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 a different time, man. It's a different time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know what, maybe Arnold Scotland was on the front line here because 10 days before the Rumble, the WWF throws in the towel on this situation uh, and signs a contract with Jewish Choice for seven years, uh, clearing the Rumble in the majority of the 13.5 million homes uh, wired for pay-per-view at this time. So uh, they, they do, in fact, get the Rumble on pay-per-view in time, 10 days to spare. And funnily enough, and again, this is just kind of a sign of the times, they actually use this as kind of a reason in the Observer. They talk about how when the buy rate comes in as a little bit of a disappointment, they kind of use this as part of the reason why people only had 10 days to order a pay-per-view. Am I wrong, or has it always been the case, as long as pay-per-views existed, it's always kind of a late buy thing? Absolutely, absolutely. And back then, did you still... um, I did not order this on pay-per-view, I can tell you that. I I can't remember what the first pay-per-view... My parents actually let me get, but it wasn't this one. Didn't you still have to like get that box? Oh yeah, you have to have a special box for it, right? Yeah, so I guess well, that kind of I guess plays to the WWE's theory more because it was more involved. Like you had to like go to your uh cable company's, you know, storefront or and, and get the box. But um, you know, by the time I my parents broke down and started with me a couple pay per views, it was just a quick phone call you made the day of. Yeah. 
Yeah. But anyway, I know Bruce in his kayfabe commentary on this year, which I'll reference uh, sporadically throughout our podcast series, he claimed it was a win for the WWF. He's like, well, you know, we kept going until, you know, Vince got a better deal. But I know that all of the notes indicate that basically WWE took the same deal they always had. Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty much the case here. And again, the Rumble for the second straight year actually disappoints uh, on pay-per-view. It did just under a 2.0 buy rate. Rumble 89 did a 1.5 the year before. So, uh, and, and this is at times when Survivor Series, two months before, are actually doing pretty good, hovering around a 3.0. Both years, the company's expecting a 3. Neither year does it get it. So it's kind of an interesting little uh, sidebar here about the Rumble not necessarily having the, uh, the oomph at the box office that it would, it would in later years. Yeah, the Rumble was definitely not the number two pay-per-view yet. That didn't really happen until the 2000s. Yeah. You know, SummerSlam was always bigger than the Royal Rumble throughout the 90s, wasn't it? Yeah, it, was, it feels to me like the real the real kind of shift is probably the Triple H year. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Everyone always talks about that because that was a record number they did for the Rumble. Right. And, you know, in the case of 1990, we'll talk about this. SummerSlam almost does as well as WrestleMania. <laughs> it does indeed. So, yeah, I mean, the, the Rumble was the last of the big four to get on pay-per-view, so it kind of makes sense. Yeah, yeah. You Thanks know, it, it's, to kind of get that kind of equity over the, over time. And the first couple of years, it was not overtly tied into the road to WrestleMania. It was yeah. just a every man for himself 30-man battle royal. There was no guaranteed main event slot at WrestleMania. And obviously, again, it took years for that gimmick to help it become the number two pay-per-view. But, uh, yeah, it wasn't the case there. So the Royal Rumble, yeah, it did not have the cachet that it has now or certainly uh, in its heyday in the first decade of the 21st century. Agreed. So as 1989 does come to an end, there's kind of a consensus feeling, and we talked about this, how there was only one possible main event for WrestleMania 6. The reigning world champion Hulk Hogan, the Intercontinental Champion, uh, the Ultimate Warrior, two extremely popular babyfaces in what looked at the time, at the start of the year, like a box office bonanza. They thought this was going to be the biggest money match since, since Andre at Mania 3. The Zeus experiment was over at this point. Uh, the WF had not done a good job of developing any other heels as top-level threats uh, throughout the prior year. Their options were pretty limited here, Kyle. Yes, I agree. I've said it before. Um, you know, at the start, Hogan Warrior was the only possible WrestleMania main event for number six. Uh, I just don't know what other option you could even come up with. And it the goes... Only, the to... only other thing, I forgot, sorry to cut you off, I just remember there was a note in the Observer that the only other name mentioned was Piper as a possible heel. But that kind of got brushed away pretty fast. Okay, okay. Uh, hmm. Is it... So Piper had... He'd been working with Rude, Rude at the end of the year. And mm, I guess... Um, I don't know, the Warrior... I mean... Look, I know because this title reign doesn't work, people just want to write him off, but he was, and you're going to talk about it in the notes here in a few minutes, he was hot. I, I, I think Hogan Warrior was a better option than, you know, doing Hogan Piper. I agree, I agree. Because Piper felt old already at this point. You know, it kind of felt like you'd be going back to 1985. Yeah. If you had Piper Warrior felt like, hey, it's the 90s, we're going to try something new from the present. Uh, and the reason there's just not much, you kind of tip the hand here. 
the heel side was exceptionally weak as we came into the year. Uh, Zeus, look, he's not a good worker. <laughs> I think we all know that. <laughs> he did draw a great number at SummerSlam 89. He sure did. But the bottom line is, after Hogan wrapped up with him, there just weren't a lot of options on the heel side that he hadn't worked with. You you know, he'd worked with Savage. He'd worked with DiBiase. Uh, really, the only three guys on the heel side that he had worked with were Rude, Perfect, who we'll get to in a few minutes, and Rick Martel, who probably wasn't ready for that role. Yeah, I, I, he, he, he never felt like he was ready for the spear of Hogan. Yeah. Uh, the problem, and this is where I'm going to kick it back to you, I assume you are fully aware of Meltzer's long-espoused theory that Hogan beating Savage for the title at Mania 5 was too soon. Right, yeah. Okay, I mean, I actually saw him having this conversation on Twitter like three weeks ago with somebody. And I remember the first time I was told that theory. It was years later. I was not subscribing to The Observer, obviously, in 1989. And I was like, you know, that kind of makes sense because the whole theory is, well, Savage was so hot. They had never had a heel champion like that since Billy Graham. And you kind of maybe got a ride with it. And then I'm thinking, you know, the staleness that we got at the end of 89 was kind of the result of a domino effect of Hogan winning the title at WrestleMania 5. Because let's say Savage retains at WrestleMania 5, okay? Hogan chases him and probably wins it at SummerSlam. Yeah. You can then bring Zeus in as the hot fall heel and then that wraps up and you go straight into warrior where there's not like this kind of gap we're about to talk with where because zeus the hogan pinned him at summerslam yeah i'm surprised they got a second match out of it to be honest yeah it, it was not a hot issue by in the fall at all but i watched 89 wf television somewhat recently like the prime times that are up on the network and here's the con to Meltzer's argument, and maybe he'd dismiss it, maybe you'll dismiss it, maybe our, some of our listeners will dismiss it. The issue is No Holds Barred was a summer release. Yes. And they wanted to do that Hogan-Zeus feud when the movie was in theaters. And I know this sounds crazy to say in 2020, but in 1989 it mattered. I think Hogan had to be the champion. That's, it's funny because doesn't that sound like such an antiquated line of thinking now? But honestly, at the time, I, I can absolutely see why that's part of the belief. You you put every ounce of promotional muscle you can into into what was a, a new venture and could have bombed just as easily as it succeeded. And, and it didn't do too great anyway. But without that kind of synergistic mentality of we've got to get things moving on television in line with the release, we've got to get it all going. You know, Hogan's representing, he's in the movies. He, who, that's the WWF champion, Hulk Hogan. You know, it's going to get mentioned when it gets covered. I can see the mentality. I can see the mindset of the timing. And I, the other kind of counter I'd have to that is that, say Savage does retain over Hogan at Mania, which in itself is quite the task and quite the thing to visualize. But Hogan chasing all summer is... You could do it, but that's a long time that Hogan's got to lose by DQ and stuff like that. And maybe uh, who knows if show, that yeah. works? Yeah. Like, and, and hey, it could work. They could spice it up by bringing in a distraction or doing tag matches up until that point. And maybe you 
kind of use Zeus as Savage's weapon early. Yes. Around around the same time, maybe he's the reason why Savage retains. Uh, and then you can kind of go with Hogan having to find a partner to kind of work with the two of them before he gets to Savage for the title again. So there's ways around it. Yes. Um, for people who want to write off the no-holds-barred factor in terms of WWE creative for 1989, again, I'm watching that television. As soon as WrestleMania five wraps up, they are f- no-holds-barred. And the promotion of that is the focal point of primetime. They have like a no-holds-barred poster behind the whole time yeah yeah a week after wrestlemania 5 they go into the discussions like hulk hogan's the WF champ again and now let's talk about the next big thing this movie no holds barred so i mean that was their big summer thing uh the other issue i think with having hogan chase all summer is like warrior was chasing rude Mm, all summer too and i don't Think, as a matter of fact, I know the WWF had never in the national expansion area had two heel champions. Right, right. So that's probably something they didn't want to do. So again, there are pros and cons to the idea of Macho keeping the title, you know, by hook or by crook at Mania. But the bottom line is by not doing that, okay, fine, you have no holds barred, that promotion the way you want it. But things were st- Things were stale on the Hogan front as we roll into 1990. Uh, the only other thing I want to talk about is Barry Windham. Yes. So this has kind of been forgotten to time. But again, I'm watching that television in 89. He was being pushed hard upon his arrival. I, I always viewed kind of Gorilla Monsoon's commentary as the conscience of the WWE booking office. <laughs> and when Gorilla talk something up you know that they want the audience to view it as special right i see what you're saying yeah and like i'm the counter uh of that is you know when something was dying at a vine gorilla would kind of bury it and he did such a great job (laughs) yes i can go back to that ted patera thing i will never forget uh when patera was about ready to leave the company they show him losing a match and they kick it back to Grill. Bobby and Grill goes, you know, Bobby, I never thought I'd have to say this, but I think Ken Patera should just retire. <laughs> and he's just killing him <laughs> on TV. And Grill was really funny when he did that. But so they and it's funny. I, I mentioned this once uh, on Top Rope Nation. Wyndham in his first match of syndication cuts a promo saying he's coming for Hulk Hogan. Right. And Vince McMahon inexplicably goes whoa hold your horses there buddy yeah i remember i've seen that he basically says i think that's a little optimistic (laughs) and jesse ventura goes well what do you want him to say (laughs) but so i remember that and thinking you know that was kind of like my memory of the Widowmakers run because it's a very brief one but i'm watching this prime time not too long ago and they're pushing him hard so I, I guess, I don't know if Vince was just in a mood that day or what, but there is no doubt in my mind that the Widowmaker possibly was going to get a house show run with Hogan fall of 89 into 90. He, his final TV taping appearance was the same one when Mr. Perfect began calling Hogan out in vignettes. Right, right. And, and, and I think and, that kind of culture, hey, maybe WF's like, well, we can't use win anymore. Let's go with perfect. Yeah. 
yeah, the timeline there is a little too coincidental when you, when you kind of look at what they were. And again, because it wasn't, and again, we're going to talk about Perfect shortly anyway, because he does get the run with Hogan. So in November of 89, the house show business, which obviously, again, now they're, not, they're barely running live events when, when they will be getting back up on their feet, as they are. Um, but an extremely important part of the company bottom line in 1989, they'd start to fall off in November. When you look at, and, you know, again, the 1990 Royal Rumble match that will come to one of my favorites in terms of star power kind of gives 92 a little bit of a run for its money, an unsuccessful run, but a run for its money nonetheless, in terms of sheer star power from, from different times in one match. And when you look at the number of guys who are legendary performers in the mix at the same time, it seems kind of unfathomable that, they, that they're not drawing that well. But the numbers, they, they don't lie. It was considered at the time that outside of Hogan, the only person who made a difference at all to attendance was the Warrior. And even then, the, the gulf is obviously vast between the two. Hogan's a made man and everything. But times were changing. And as Hogan's feud with Perfect at the start of the year gets going, it, it's still drawing those kind of lackluster houses that they were trying to pull away from. Hogan is, is getting quite a bit of publicity. He makes the cover of TV Guide uh, just a month earlier, at the end of 89, as one of the 20 biggest television personalities of the decade of the 80s. Quite the, uh, the lofty uh, thing to be uh, called. But the match with Perfect still only does 11,500 fans at MSG considered a, a poor crowd by the standards of the time. And, and as a draw, wasn't that strong around the horn either. Yeah, so I found this TV Guide article, Leo. <laughs> uh, it was the December 9th, 1989 TV Guide. It was a special look at the 80s. And Hulk Hogan is named the 14th most important television personality of the decade. Would you like to know the 13 people ahead of him? Please do. I have the list. Okay. I can't fathom these. And I also said the six below him. I like <laughs> the five. Yeah, uh, okay. Here are the six below him on the top 20. Pee Wee Herman, Alf, Morton Downey Jr. <laughs> oh, there's wow. a WWF connection. Yeah. Dan Rather, Roseanne Barr, Don Johnson. <laughs> He's, Don so Johnson's then you have Hogan. What's that? Don Johnson's got to be pissed. Uh, he does. He does. What about Tubbs? Um, so Hogan's number 14. Number 13, John Madden. Well, number yes. 12, Sam Donaldson, ABC News. 11, the California Raisins. I don't even know number, what that is. <laughs> there was a commercial. I heard it through the grapevine. Okay. You know the CCR song I heard yeah, it through the yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, well, the California Raisins redid it. That is bad. Oh. Uh, but it was popular. That felt kind of like a recency bias thing. Because mm, I yeah. when I was a kid, and I wonder if that, that's what that was. Like, it was just, eh, it was kind of fresh in people's minds they put up. Because the California, when I think the 1980s, the California Raisins are not the 11th most <laughs> popular thing in my mind. Anyway. Most of these 10, uh, you can see Tom Selleck, Michael J. Yep. Fox, David Letterman, yep. Wrestling Connection. Number seven, Vanna White, WrestleMania Connection. Indeed. Ted Topple, Joan Collins, Ronald Reagan at number four. Uh, and the top three were Oprah, Larry Hagman, Bill Cosby. Wow. Wow. What a, what a litany of, of stars the 80s had. Real rogues gallery, if you will. <laughs> We're literally a rose gallery at the top there, but uh, yeah, kind of, kind of a rough feel. 
Do you, do you think the people at TV Guide are looking to burn those copies with <laughs> number one? That doesn't, you know, they, they actually found someone worse than Hulk Hogan, you know. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. Yeah. But let's talk about perfect, shall we? I, I just I just thought that was interesting, you know. It some is, of these, some of these uh, magazine articles that you put in your notes, I went looking for them, and that was the one I could find the TV Guide. I thought That's that was a gem. Fun, but, okay, perfect. My question that I want to pose to you is, was he just not a good headliner, or could he have been built up better? I think when you kind of look at what happened, I think he could have been built up better. I think he didn't do, considering what came before, and which I know you want to touch on, but like considering the way that Perfect was built, I'm not surprised it did what it did. So it kind of makes you wonder, if they had done it, if they had pushed him strong, if they had pushed him harder, would he have produced better results? And I'm kind of inclined, I, I, I don't know, I'm kind of inclined to think it might not have been, because I look at this period and I kind of think, you know, well, perfect, you know, the way he was. Actually, this is one that I really do want to talk to you about, because you were watching at the time, I was not, and I've always kind of had, when I watched, when I first watched the television from 88, 89, I kind of had this impression that it took perfect longer to get over than I thought. Yes. And it's something for even someone who watched in real time. When you go back, it's kind of shocking how little Perfect did his first year in the company. Right. In terms of things that had an impact on the promotion as a whole. He didn't have any real feuds. He did work with Brett House Shows through 89. That was a house show program. But it wasn't like some big TV feud, even by mid-card standards. And this is kind of what makes me think that maybe Wyndham was the one earmarked for the Hogan program. Not perfect. Because it feels like it comes out of nowhere. It does. And, and, and I, I, you had a point about you know, the, the real, what his path to the top actually was. And, and like how they got him there. And even then, that's not all that impressive. No, I mean... We all remember the vignettes of him being introduced, playing pool and, you know, doing all these athletic feats perfectly. When you try to compare that to another WF character, who do you inevitably think of? Oh, man. Uh, with million There's dollar a man. very right answer here, just not to put any pressure on you. <laughs> I was thinking the Million Dollar Man vignettes. Yes, that is the correct answer. So... If you compare the Million Dollar Man vignettes when he debuted and the perfect vignettes... Oh, it's night and day. <laughs> yeah, I think it's really clear why one worked as a main event player and the other one kind of didn't. Because the perfect ones were silly. I mean, okay, the DiBiase ones had some silliness too, but there was sort of a more just main event feel to them. And the key was... He was shot to the main event immediately. Yes. Whereas Perfect was not. You know, what did Perfect do in 89? His pay-per-view matches are Blue Blazer and Red Rooster. So, unless Legendary you're someone... Characters. Yeah, yeah. Unless if you're someone who gets really upset by, you know, colorful wrestlers with alliterative nicknames losing, that doesn't really get your, you know, make your skin crawl, right? Perfect beating him. It was just like, there was kind of matches where... Yeah, okay, perfect wins. He's, I kind of view him as better anyway. It was just a heel winning. And he won clean, 
which makes it look impressive. But I don't think there was a true impressive TV victory for Perfect before he got to Hogan, and that was a problem. As far as how you could do it better, I look at the Survivor Series. He was one of the guys protected, at least, in that he survived his match. Now, you look at who survived the respective matches. On the heel side, it was him. And then from a different match, you had Savage, Earthquake, and Bravo. All our guys we're going to talk about as this podcast rolls on. If you'd done like a grand finale match like they did in 90 and somehow Perfect came out on top of that, maybe that's what he needed going into the Hogan program. Now, you look at the babyface side, which have been Hogan, Warrior, Rhodes, and Beefcake who survived their matches. Mm. There's obviously going to be a lot of cheap finishes in the booking. But if you had like Mr. Perfect being the sole survivor of that event somehow, or... Maybe he works Hogan's match, and you do a double DQ with Hogan and Zeus, and Mm. Perfect wins that. That would have helped. I just don't think there was that meaningful win for Mr. Perfect his entire first year in the company that pointed to, this guy is a credible main event threat. Basically, they just gave him the genius, and it's like, all right, he's a main eventer now. (laughs) And the genius was not exactly, uh, you know, high on the the card himself. He's like working with Coco B. most. Of 89. Yeah, and again, when they started his vignettes, there was nothing to indicate, oh, this is a main event act. Now, I thought the genius is amusing. Oh, yeah. Heat to the perfect character, but some would say questionable heat, but nevertheless, it was heat and it was something to do. I just don't think, compared to past Hogan opponents, Mr. Perfect, you know, as good a worker as he was, just doesn't measure up. To the Paul Orndorffs, to the Randy Savages, to the Andres, to the Pipers. Even though, like, come on, to be honest with you. It's just, it wasn't a typical Hogan opponent. And the matches were, they had a problem, the matches, in that Hogan matches saw him sell for the middle period, right? Right. And he would make a Superman comeback. Well, perfect... His matches are basically him selling. So you had two guys who the structure of their matches were usually them selling, and then they have to work with each other. So the matches didn't really work, and I think that hurt too uh, as time went on. Yeah, and, and, and in the short term, it was not that strong. There was some decent houses and, and ones that probably would have been greatly appreciated as the year goes on. Um but just it feels kind of weak for Hogan by the standards of Hogan at that time. Now, even though we mentioned that Perfect may not have been as good for the role, there were a couple of names that you kind of dug out, Kyle, uh, yeah, that were supposed to be around. Yeah, there, there were some eye-opening names that I caught by uh, on over on HistoryWB.com that were brought in for various re- heels that were brought in uh, for various reasons. I'll get to that in a minute. I just want to say with uh, the Perfect House show numbers, it's funny to hear in 2020, we're comparing about a house show that draws 11,500 people. I know, isn't that so strange? They, they kill for that now. Yeah, they kill. I mean, they kill for that at a TV. Yes, they would. So it just shows how important the house show business uh, still was at this point in time. Uh, and you mentioned there were some numbers that maybe did deliver better than this program is giving credit for. I saw, I think it was Toronto, Chicago, and LA were were pretty good, but. 
there was one number early in this run, late 89, Minneapolis. Think about that. You got two former AWA champs, Hogan and Perkins. Well, I guess Hogan was not a former AWA champ, but an AWA headliner. Yeah. Minneapolis, December 89, 3,500. Oh. Yeah, that's just dreadful. Uh, And before I get to these names, I wanted to, if you're wondering what happened to the Widowmaker, Barry Windham, he had to quit the company because his family got into legal trouble with counterfeiting. Yeah, $1.2 million of fake $20 bills were uh, attempted to be sold to an undercover cop, and the guy that took the cash to sell to the under, uh, undercover cop was Blackjack Mulligan. Uh, so on Boxing Day of 89, unfortunately, uh, the Wyndham family kind of goes underground a little bit. Yeah, that, that you know, Barry, he, he had to leave the company, so maybe it's better that he didn't get the spot because you certainly don't want that with a guy who's headlining. Uh, speaking of people who have gotten into various legal issues... <laughs> lives um check out these names that showed up on wwe booking sheets in early 1990 bob orton jr was supposed to make his return at that january msg show and work bret hart he no showed i can i did not write down who replaced him on it it's irrelevant though 1990 bob orton jr can't imagine he would have been earmarked for hogan but i mean no but it could have been somebody else's ace yeah, I mean, God, Bob Wharton Jr. 1990. No. I mean, that 89 stuff with Dick Murdoch at the NWA was heinous. <laughs> uh, speaking about guys who had worked in 1989 NWA and were not that successful, Scott Hall yep. uh, showed up in a dark match for TV uh, on January 23rd, doing a job to Paul Roma. Bruce Pritchard on the record is saying Hall was lacking in charisma at the time. I'm not going to disagree with that comment. No, he was pretty green. Yeah. So, interesting. Do you just think it was, as far as the Razor Ramon character, too early to do something with Scott Hall? Yeah, Maybe I mean... Maybe of it? <laughs> when you think about what he ends up being in, in the NWA around this kind of time frame, he, I felt like he was green even quite early into his WWF run, to be quite honest. It took a while for it to click with Hall. Yes. So, okay, so he's not going to be a major player anyway. Certainly not someone to replace the Ultimate Warrior. Uh, Terry Gordy was backstage at the February 13th tapings. Uh, same tapings, I believe, is where the Rockers showed up, black and blue. We're going to talk about that later. <laughs> in this uh, that, though, I think was just likely to the All Japan show uh, that WWE was co-promoting that we're going to talk about. And Terry was ironically scheduled to main event against Hogan on that show before Stan Hansen had to step in. Yes, which is a great story that we will get to. Probably maybe dive into it. Actually, there's... A little thought there that we might uh, get into for part two. That's quite an interesting little thing. I'll, uh, I'll kind of hold my, my tongue on that one for now. But he yeah, won the by jumping. Would he have? I mean, like, I don't think WWE could have made him an offer that would have made who Gordy says that would have made him want to jump. No, I think Gordy was at that point. Gordy was. I mean, and the reason, and we will dive into this now because it's easy to say, but Gordy did not want to lose to Hogan because I think he just went, like, hadn't him and Doc just won, like, the real world tag league or something like that, and he didn't want to lose because they did, you know, all Japan had just given him, like, a, a, a huge win, or they just won the tag titles or something. I can't remember off the top of my head, but he, he'd just been given a strong push and didn't want to sacrifice it so quick. Yeah, and that, that is why, I mean, he gets subbed out because he didn't want a job at the show and then Stan yeah. Hansen, of all people, who isn't exactly known for looking up at the lights, uh, came in and he did so for his own uh, political reasons and it, and it benefited him long term, certainly. Indeed. 
Indeed. So, jobbing to Hulk Hogan actually did help Stan Hansen's career. <laughs> one of the fun. few. Yeah. But, uh, and I guess as we move forward here, uh, looking at how hot guys were, we talk about Hogan kind of feeling a little bit lackluster, a little bit stagnant. Warrior, as you said, Kyle, felt hotter, particularly with kids, uh, which was the WF's target audience at that time. And as the kind of ball slowly gets rolling on the Hogan-Warrior build, the early signs are pretty promising. Yeah, contrary to the belief that this was a failure, references uh, to the other two in interviews leading up to the Royal Rumble, they were doing this stuff, talking about how they were in there with 28 other men. And then, of course, they were kind of reserving, you know, well, what about number 29? You're obviously talking about Hulk Hogan, and you're obviously talking about the Ultimate Warrior. They did it for both of them. Uh... They were pretty intriguing, and and it seems like okay, this is what they're teasing. This is what they're teasing, and when these two guys lock eyes in the Royal Rumble in 1990, that is one of the greatest moments in the history of that storied event. I love that moment when, yes. you, know, Ma- you know, Michaels gets canned in 15 seconds, uh, and Martel goes over the top rope in short order, and they just the crowd and Jesse so great. Shawn Michaels eliminated by the Warrior, and Rick Martel eliminated by the Warrior. Person sitting down, everyone on his feet. Look at the eyes of the Hulkster, the eyes of the Warrior. Whoa, what a matchup this is going to be! The Ultimate Warrior and Hulk Hogan one on one. It's awesome. Felt organic. Totally felt organic, and and it's one of those things. Like we and and the way I always kind of visualize this and kind of describe it, it's it was the perfect tease, and in, in the sense that it gave you just enough to capture your imagination and want you to see that match, but little enough that it didn't ruin the illusion of what it actually would be. They didn't give away too much. No, uh, I agree with you totally. When we did a watch along for the Royal Rumble 1990, I believe it was at your behest, by the way, yes, Liam. Thank indeed. you. On Top Rope Nation Classics, we. All three of us on that show came to the decision that that may have been the best moment in Royal Rumble history. And it was such a great way to start the program in that organic fashion. Because it's like, you know, a babyface, babyface program had never been done on top for WBF. And it's like, well, how do you start this going to WrestleMania? I don't think I could have picked a better way than what they did in the Royal No, and, and, and the early results are promising because the press conference that they held, they hold in Toronto on February 5th to announce, obviously at the Sky Dome, it's going to be Hogan and the Warrior, and they sell 10,000 tickets by the early afternoon. Within a week, 25,000 tickets have sold. So the initial indications are that this is a hot match and that this is going to be a hot show. Yeah, uh, things are lining up for the Warrior, and... I'm going to jump ahead here in my notes real quick and just say this. I can only speak for myself, but when this scenario was set up and it was pretty obvious that it was going, you know, even before they announced on TV that this was going to be the main event for WrestleMania, I very much wanted the Ultimate Warrior to win. <laughs> Nine-year-old Kyle was very adamant that the Ultimate Warrior should beat Hulk Hogan. Did you believe he would? No. <laughs> Although, you know, I should say this. I was like 50-50. I remember my dad, who does not like wrestling and has very rarely watched it. But for whatever reason, he was actually in the room when 
I think Hogan and Warrior were cutting promos on each other. He's like, oh, this is interesting. Who, who do you think's going to win? And my response was, well, I really want Warrior to win, but stupid Hulk Hogan's probably going to win because he always wins. <laughs> so very early, smart, Markish remark there you from yours, you truly. Knew. But yeah, so I was very pleasantly surprised when he went over. Spoiler alert for those <laughs> listening and may not know where this is going. <laughs> uh, so Hogan is starting to kind of see the writing on the wall and he's sensing the opinion of, of, of uh, nine-year-olds like yourself. He's starting to see that, you know, his own tenure at the top, there's, there's things going on here. And it's funny because in The Observer, in the final weeks of 1989, there's a story floating around linking Hulk Hogan to Disney as part of a plan to leave the WWF and retire from, from the wrestling business. I think this ends up actually being New Line Cinema that gets him, but there's discussions and there's rumors that, uh, that there's something here to Hogan leaving... The company gets enough steam that Variety actually do a story on it as well. Um, of course, there's nothing to the Hogan Disney stuff in the end, but Hogan did tell the company they want to take time off over the summer. Uh, so you kind of wonder, when Hogan sees the momentum that the Warrior has, he sees the momentum this match has. I and It's funny, it comes down to this, probably. When this match gets made, when you look at the tenor of the times, it almost feels like there's only one finish you can do. Yes, and we'll get into that more. I think the idea of doing this match and having Warrior lose, what in God's name do you do after that? Right. Especially with the Warrior. I mean, if the... If, oh, he's fucked. Know, yeah, I mean, now in 2020, we're used all the time, guys being built up to a world title shot, losing and just kind of hanging around and maybe randomly getting another one. But in 1990... If you had the ultimate warrior lose at WrestleMania, I, I just I don't know what you'd do with them except turn him heel. I mean, I guess Hogan would just work a title program with Earthquake, but like as you said, he wanted to take time off in the summer, and I believe that was for Suburban Commando. Yeah, so I have to have a look at that. I think they might have actually done Suburban Commando after SummerSlam. I'm not sure if he actually did a movie in the summer. Oh, okay. So he just Oh, you're right. It was uh it was family stuff that he left for in the summer of nineteen ninety. You're right. Oh, yes. Was was somebody, maybe somebody was born? Maybe, hmm, I'll have to have a look at that. Was it was it your boy, Nasty Nick? <laughs> it, might, it might have been. I think it, it was a family situation. I know it was now. I just can't remember who was born. So, obviously, with him kind of wanting to take this time off, Vince is obviously reading the tea leaves too. He's kind of hearing the stories, which are probably planted by Hogan himself, to be quite honest, uh, about, you know, how, how flourishing. I'll jump in now, Liam. Yeah. <laughs> Nick. Nicholas Allen Bolea was born on July 27th, 1990. There we go. There we go. So there it is. It was, in fact, a family thing, just like you said. And Brooke was born during the hiatus of 1988. Ah, okay. Well, there you go. Once time at home. What a family man. Yes. Yes. The only thing that can the only thing that can take the world title off Hulk Hogan is the birth of a child. <laughs> what a guy. Um, obviously... Uh, Vince is reading the tea leaves. He sees that Hogan wants the time away. But, having said that, apparently the plan was not for the Warrior to beat Hogan all along, which kind of stunned me when I heard that because there were signs that were uh, kind of impossible to ignore at this point. Um, at the house shows, when the match was announced that at WrestleMania it would be Warrior versus Hogan, the fans were wildly cheering for the Warrior and there was the famed mixed reaction for Hulk Hogan uh, when they would do it. And it was consistent. It was across the board when they were doing this for weeks, it was always that the Warrior was the one getting the cheers. 
So you're saying that they had not officially made their mind up, according to no. reports. But it's not, it's not like they were thinking Hogan would win. But, you know, the office is listening to these reactions. They haven't made up their mind yet. And they're like, well, duh, we got to do Warrior. Yeah, exactly. That's how that's how I interpret this. It's that when okay. they put the match together, they may, you know, Vince may have known where this was going from the start when he made the match, but it apparently was not always decided exactly where they were going to go with this, which again Ooh. kind of boggles the mind because yeah, again, what do you do with the warrior? That buries the warrior pretty much. Um, mm-hmm. Very much Hogan's kind of get out plan. It feels like kind of similar to Bret in '96. Basically, like, oh, I'm not gonna be the top baby face, so let's good luck let get out of here and see how the and and kind of secretly hope the other one fails so they come calling back to me. Yeah, precisely. Yeah, I can see that. Hogan also was always the master throughout his career if he was getting a little stale leaving. I mean, even when you go into WCW, you know, he got out. In late 95, he leaves for a while, and that backfired completely because house show business picked up with Flair Savage, and there was the prevailing thought that uh, maybe we don't need Hogan. And that that's what gave the company a position of strength to turn him heel. Yes. Uh, and then, I know he did come back for Super Brawl to work the Giant, and that disaster and uncensored, but that you know, he, he was gone for a long time. Uh, for a lot more than he was on TV from late 95 until the turn. And then, you know, he leaves in 98 too with the hope that the company's going to fall apart under Nash's booking with Goldberg on top. So it, it's always something he's done where he leaves in the hope that, you know, those remaining will fail and he'll be called back in to save the day. Yeah. Amazing. Amazing timing that man has. But, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, so in addition to this, obviously, and, and, and the WWF, as they're kind of gearing up for this huge event, they get a huge spectacle on the, on the horizon for the February 23rd edition of the main event on NBC when Vince signs Mike Tyson to be the special referee for a match between Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage for the WWF title. It gets a ton of press, tons of newspaper coverage. Uh, I, I did write down an interesting little sign of the times. The highest price for a ticket to the uh, to the main event was only sixteen dollars, even with Tyson uh, as the special referee. Uh, as the show, I, I know, I know. Uh, as the show draws near, the natural speculation uh, obviously comes up in the papers about a Hogan Tyson pay per view, which actually happened with Austin too in in ninety eight when the angle first happens, and papers are just kind of wild with the speculation of what if Tyson does a match, and the idea of a Hogan Tyson pay per view. Uh, made the rounds as much as anything else. Don King was really pushing for this in the media. Uh, he felt that Tyson had a lack of heavyweight opponents that were kind of money players, and he Oops. loved he loved <laughs> <laughs> and he loved the idea of Hogan Tyson. Apparently, okay. From WWF's perspective, Hogan Tyson would have been a terrible idea, right? Oh man, oh man. It it's funny because I feel that 2020 Vince wouldn't see that. He would just look at it as these two huge names. We can get them under our banner and we'll just do whatever in terms of the finish. But it's just so important to have Hulk Hogan versus Mike Tyson and the coverage that comes with that. Yeah. Here's the issue in 1990. What do you do for a finish? I mean, the political 
machinations behind the scenes would have been a disaster for that because you cannot have Hulk Hogan lose. This is not 2009 where you bring Floyd Mayweather in and just feed him the big show. It's uh, I love this because at the time, and there's a story I didn't put in the notes, but I'm gonna I'm gonna unleash this one on you here, Carl, because I I, I thought you'd enjoy this. Uh-oh. So they're talking at the time about well, you know, in theory, what would you even do? Because if you did a worked match, which is the obvious thing, you know, the the, the media's just gonna lampoon Tyson for being involved with this. It's just like, oh, they're doing that you know stupid wrestling shit. It's all fake, whatever. But if you did a shoot fight, <laughs> what are you gonna do? <laughs> And then it leads to the great story in the Observer about how Hulk Hogan told friends that he thought if it was a shoot, he could take Tyson. Oh, no. <laughs> Hulk. Hulk. <laughs> Dude, did you see Tyson, that footage? I think it was on TMZ of him working out. Oh, yeah. Dude, still a beast. Mike Tyson today could kick 1990 Hulk Hogan's ass <laughs> in like under a minute. Yeah, he needs, to, he needs to work out front face like a little long if he wants to beat Tyson. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know, right? Yeah, unless, uh, <laughs> yeah, and I, I don't think Mike Tyson's going to go down like Richard Belzer. Uh, <laughs> now, here's the interesting thing, though, William. We don't have to worry about this, do we? we and don't. Don King should have been maybe more concerned about Mike Tyson's boxing career. <laughs> Possibly so, because Buster Douglas has something to say about this. Yeah, knocks egg, Mike Tyson though. out. At the egg, though, knocks him the fuck out days before Saturday night's main event. Uh, when this happens, they actually can't get in touch with Tyson to find out if he's still doing the show for a little while. Um, but at least to an emergency deal, obviously he does pull out, and there's an emergency deal to put Buster Douglas on the show in his place, which actually, is, when you think about it, in terms of acting fast, that's a pretty decent little coup with all the, all the news that that made. Um, yeah, but- there was people need to realize there was a 12-day gap between the... Tyson Douglas fight and the live main event special. Bruce Pritchard said they met Douglas getting off an airplane from Japan, which is where the fight was, the Tyson Douglas fight, and just made the deal like on a runway. Hundred grand, hundred grand for this. Apparently, and some bonus perks, uh, whatever they were, to do the show. I, I, okay, so they, again, throw this to you. Was this? well publicized this switch to douglas or did they just kind of leave it lingering in the air what happened so on the i looked this up the syndicated television on what would have been the go home before the main event like the saturday and sunday shows before the the weekend before they had interviews with mike tyson talking about it still which i obviously pre-taped and there's just and again that's just one week where these these are already in the can and they aired I did not find out about Buster. Obviously, I, I knew about the knockout. And being a wrestling fan, my first reaction was, uh, what about WWF? <laughs> and like, well, what is this going to do for Mike Tyson's WWF appearance that he's going to do? And I did not learn, and I would be interested to hear from other fans who were living through this real time. I didn't find out until seconds before the show that Buster Douglas was going to be replacing Tyson on an, on the NBC show. And the way I did is, whatever the show was that was on before WWF on NBC, they said, up next, Hulk Hogan, Randy Savage, with James Buster Douglas as the referee. I remember very vividly sitting in my parents' den, the other room where we had a TV, and I think I was watching with my younger brother and saying, oh my God, they got James Buster Douglas. And Dude. it sounded, 
kind of cool, and it was the right decision to make. And oh, kudos to them for being able to do it. Now, that's James it. Buster Douglas is nowhere near the star Mike Tyson is, as we're going to find out. Uh, and you shouldn't need us to tell you that, but tip your cap to WWF for making that quick switch. Yeah, that's actually, it's kind of a bit of an underrated little coup that, like, they were able to get that done so fast. And again, like, maybe not uh, kind of getting the word out, but still. Yeah, well, it was tougher back then. Word and travel is fast and another side of the times is this was probably douglas's first big tv appearance as the champion because espn is not was not in 1990 what it is in 2020 it's not this like 24-hour monster where he like comes to bristol and does a full day worth of interviews on every talking head show i mean they had sports on all that they had like you know uh, i mean they had wrestling for god's sake in the afternoon but so this was like a really big deal to get Buster Douglas on there. And as we'll talk about, it kind of wound up being a whole lot of nothing. But in theory, it, sound, it, it sounded great. Yeah, as, as a move to make, it was the right move to make. In terms, if it's his first TV appearance, again, there's, there's a natural curiosity value there. I see the value in it. Um, the show ends up doing a 12.8 rating, which was lower than the 15 that was hoped for by NBC when, uh, when, when Tyson was on board. But it was higher than the, the rating the year before, the 11.8 that 1989's version did, uh, lower than the 15.2 of 1988, which is kind of the benchmark for the Hogan-Andre uh, match and the big angle with the, with the twin referees. Curious statistic uh, that came up here in the ratings. The viewership was higher for the Warriors match with Dino Brava that went on second uh, and followed the Hogan-Savage match with Buster Douglas. A better rating for Warrior and Dino Bravo than, than, than Hogan and Savage. Yeah, and as you know, the formula for the main event, Saturday Night's main event, is the big match always went on first or, or second. If it, was, if it was a Saturday Night's main event, Hogan would always work in the second match because the show would go late into the night and the thought was you wanted to put the big star on first. Uh, that did surprise me that Warrior Bravo had more eyeballs on it than Hogan Savage, particularly because Hogan Savage got Buster Douglas. Yeah. So and, um, and the, the other one's got Dino Bravo in. Yeah, yeah, and, and you know that was kind of a, a nothing feud where you just would assume the Warrior's going to win. Uh, I know we're going to talk about that show in greater detail in a few minutes, but um, this show did 21,000, by the way, at Joe Louis Arena. That's a strong number. Right? Very good number, yeah. So, yeah. So, again, okay, maybe Hogan's house show program perfect's not doing good, but you're talking about, hey, Warriors outperforming Hogan in TV numbers. You're getting 21000 paid for a live TV show. WWE's got to be feeling pretty good about themselves. Now, I do want to make a comment about the three TV ratings. Okay. Because this kind of points to TV ratings being an overrated metric. You know, until your boy Eric Bischoff wanted to talk about all the time, they weren't necessarily the end-all, be-all of pro wrestling. No. Okay. Not at all. So, yeah. The lowest TV number of the first three main event, February main event specials was 1989 when Savage wound up turning on Hogan. The Mega Powers explode. Okay. That also did the, that, that year, 1989, oh, had the oh, best yes. media buy rate. Yes, it did. By far. So, 
TV ratings, so if you're like, oh, well, I guess 89 was the big failure. Uh, no, it actually was the most successful television program despite doing the lowest rating because the point of it was to draw interest in Mania and WrestleMania 5 compared to 4 and 6 um, did, you know, significantly better uh, in terms of uh, the pay-per-view market. You know, that's always lost with that great Hogan-Andre number in 88. Obviously, will never be beaten by any wrestling television program ever again 33 million viewers. 33 million but you know wrestlemania 4 kind of tanked on pay-per-view and i you know i know people are going to watch oh the clash of champions but it's not like people tuned in saying oh i bet this is going to be like the best work rate show in the history of free television like you can't predict that no so i, I there was some disconnect in you know the bill it was probably the fact it was a tournament to be honest tournaments don't draw well and this is kind of you know, the middle one where it's got the middle rating and in terms of pay-per-view buys, it it's better than four, but not as good as five. Yeah, so it kind of falls I in just, line. I just wanted to go through that, that, you know, when you look at, evaluate those TV, don't just use the TV rating as the way to evaluate the three shows because the 89 version is by far the most effective television show, despite some of the live gaffes and poor <laughs> acting from Hulk Hogan, it is the most effective of the three TV shows. And this is probably the least effective of the three TV shows as we're going to get into. Yeah, so, <laughs> and, and this is where things really, unfortunately, this is the turning point. This is where things kind of go off the rails, and this is what gets lost to history. And part of the reason why I, you know, we both wanted to do this series, up to this point, it's all looking pretty good for the Warrior. Like, every indication is saying, as they're moving forward in this direction... This is not the wrong direction to go. And then the big angle happens on the main event. And by big angle, I mean the most pedestrian angle that they've probably done for a WrestleMania. Yeah. This was this was the big chance. This is when yeah, this is the most eyeballs that they were gonna get on one of their shows to hook people into this dream match of Hogan and Warrior. And when they do the angle in the at the end, sorry, afterwards of the uh the aftermath of the Warrior Bravo match when Quake gets involved. Hogan runs out to do the save, which leads to a bit of a shoving match. And it just feels flat. And it, uh, yeah, when you consider what's been done before, the precedent and the drama and everything they've done, even the, comparing it to the Rumble in January, this feels like the crowd was looking at it and it just feels weird. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, it just feels cold. Okay, there's a lot to unpack there. First off... Since the Warrior is going to be the next champion and theoretically the face of the company, shouldn't he have been linked to Buster Douglas somehow on that show? Should I do and not Hogan? <laughs> okay. I, I don't know how you do that. I guess it would be weird if Buster Douglas was the rep referee for the not WWF title match. I get that you want him to be the referee for the WWF title match. That's ultimately why he was linked with Hogan. But it feels weird that there was no Warrior Douglas interaction if your goal is to make warrior the next star i don't yeah. know if he could have come out and somehow gotten involved with the warrior earthquake post-match um, i would have done something other than buster douglas cut a promo after at the end of the show saying him and hogan were quote going out drinking later <laughs> and well, he's when, honest yeah well no and, and when and it, mean gene of all people acts aghast at this revelation <laughs> buster douglas goes Oh, you know, milk. Uh, I'm a skim guy and Hulk's a whole milk or something like that. It is really lame. Oh, yeah. Good stuff. It's a, a milk <laughs> jokes? 
<laughs> it, or it's like whole and two percent. I don't care what the kind of I, I actually hate white milk. But um, the accidental clothesline bit happened on the Saturday night's main event where they worked perfect and genius. Genius, yeah. As a tag team, here there was not even any accidental clothesline or real physicality. It was just Hogan comes out, helps the warrior when it looks like Earthquake is going to do a sit-down splash off the rope on him. And then Hogan and Warrior just kind of shove each other afterwards. What a what a weak, weak way to lean to your big match. Yeah. Okay. So how could we have spruced up the main event, I think, becomes the next question. If this is truly the turning point where interest in this program nosedives, what do we do? And I think something that's important to talk about and this is something I realized doing the research, is the Saturday night's main event slash main event schedule, as well as the schedule in building the main event, was slightly different than 88 and 89. The January Saturday night's main event was later. So was this main event. The main event in 88 and 89 was the first Friday in February. This was late in February. This was like three weeks later. It was the 23rd as opposed to like the 5th. Uh, you did not have a March Saturday Night's main event in 1989, although we did have an Ultimate Challenge special on the USA Network where they did a horrible Morgan <laughs> Warrior contract signing. Oh, man. Oh, man. That contract signing is bogus. You're like, the camera angles were something you'd see on, like, 2020 WWF TV, I feel, and laugh about it. Yeah. You used to see shit that cheesy. That's Which it. is ironic given the cartoonish nature of the product in 1990. But, like, did did you watch this? I did. Like, I, oh, yeah. Okay. When the camera turns just directly to the guy listening, yeah. to the other guy talking, it is horrid. <laughs> like, the warrior's rambling, and the camera just zooms on, Ho- like, straight away on Hogan. You're hearing Warrior, and, like, Hogan is just, like, staring in the camera, like, huffing he's, and puffing. He, he's staring at the lens as if you are the ultimate warrior cutting this promo on him. Yeah, and then they do it the other way, too. It's really bad. It's not, You can find the Ultimate Challenge special uh, on YouTube really easy. If you just type in Ultimate Challenge 1990, you can find the full special. It was it was a primetime wrestling. Um they did also do a Hogan-Bravo match on Superstars, which had to be redone, according to history of WWE.com. I don't know what was done differently, but they taped the Hogan-Bravo segment, which Warrior saves him from Earthquake. Yeah, It's basically just Hogan and Warrior in reverse roles from the Warrior-Bravo match on the main event. But yet they did it as a dark deal uh, at Superstars, and then... I guess they, they, there was something they didn't like, and they retaped it the next day as, as part of Challenge. I, I don't know what the di- difference was. I would love to see the – I'm sure the original version has been lost to time and, and isn't available. So, But I bring all this timeline stuff up because it makes it kind of hard to figure out what to do at the main event. So the big angle to set up the WrestleMania main event here is done at the Royal Rumble. Yes, like absolutely. Once Hogan and Warrior have their face-off in that Rumble match, it's not explicitly stated, but it's pretty damn overt that's going to be the main event of WrestleMania, right? Yeah, for sure. Okay, so in 88 and 89, the Mania main event scene didn't take hold until that 
main event special on NBC. Like, you know, the title had to be vacated at, in order to do the tournament, the WrestleMania 4. The title didn't the get vacated until after the Hogan-Andre match at the main event. Uh, the main event for WrestleMania 5, Hogan-Savage. Well, you needed to split them up. The split-up happened on the NBC special. So I think they were kind of working from a handicap here in the sense that the main event was already... Uh, it had already been signed, as a matter of fact. It had been announced on television that it was going to be Hogan versus Warrior. You already knew it coming into the main event special what the main, Mania main event was going to be. Uh, they'd done the Saturday night's main event. Again, I mentioned that a little bit ago. The January Saturday night's main event in 1990 was several weeks later than it was in prior years. And I think that's key because, you know, Hogan and Warrior had to continue their deal because it was a week after the Royal Rumble. And that's when the Warrior does the clothesline. Right. Accidental clothesline on Hogan. Whereas the previous Saturday Night's Main events were just kind of like Hogan wrapping up shit before he gets into Mania season. I think in 89, he wrestles Akeem. Powers, yep. Yeah, and then 88... He works like Bundy, and even going back to like '87, he kind of wraps up Orndorff in the cage, right? So yes, here in the January of 1990, the the Saturday Night's Main Event is already pointing in the direction of WrestleMania. So you've done the big face off at the Rumble, you've done the accidental clothesline on Saturday Night's Main Event. I don't know what you do at the main event. What is there left to do? Because you already know what the main event is. And I don't know if you want them to do a big brawl because having Hulk Hogan and Ultimate Warrior brawl on live television isn't going to be Jim Duggan, Buzz Sawyer. <laughs> no, it's not. And the whole allure of WrestleMania builds back then is the two participants really didn't touch or do anything physical. So what was there left to do? I think the big hook was Mike Tyson and then Buster Douglas just being there and nothing more. So, I mean, is there something we can come up with? You know, you say it like that. The only thing is, like, they either – it feels that like they have to go – especially because with how cold this gets, and that's a big thing that we're going to talk about here, is how the, the indicators, the positive signs, especially for the Warrior, man, they dip right after this. And it feels like – they either have to go with the all-in, they have to go all-in on something, they have to go all-in combative, or they have to go like all-in on the idea of this being a fantasy match, and they've kind of screwed the pooch on the first one by doing the first confrontation at the Rumble so far back, and the combative thing, the only thing is like, again, using it with modern eyes, the wild pull-apart with everybody keeping them apart from each other if something goes wrong, but even then, it's like, is that gonna be that hot? I mean, it certainly would be harder than what they did. You know, the use of Buster Douglas, getting back to that, was pretty pedestrian. I wonder if they would have had something more for Tyson or if Tyson's charisma just would have made it more interesting. But that Hogan-Savage was not much of a match. It was basically just wrestling constructed around a bunch of spots with Buster Douglas. Yeah, putting him over. Yeah, and then, you know, he does the knockout of Savage, but, you know, whatever. I mean, that doesn't really build the Hogan warrior. It doesn't do anything uh, well, for anybody. Now, yeah. <laughs> I don't think there was a lot of drama. This also hurt the main event. So you have Hulk Hogan wrestling in one match, Ultimate Warrior wrestling in another match. Well, obviously, they're both going to win. And that right. kind of I think, that show, too. The only thing that was added after this show to the Mania main event was that it would be title versus title. 
That actually, that stipulation was not made explicit on TV until after this aired. Yeah, I think before this aired, they were doing the thing where they were debating which belt it would be, which which one belt would be on the line. Yeah. Now, you kind of touched on this. If you're doing a babyface versus babyface feud, I think you're just kind of stuck if you don't want to turn another guy heel because you've done the accidental clothesline and there's no real personal issue here. I just, I don't know what there is. You know, they tried really hard uh, through Jesse Ventura to play up that Hogan had stolen the Warriors' spotlight by coming out. Yeah, and that's interesting because they actually, it felt like that might be something they were going to do because Hogan steals the pin in the the perfect genius tag match that they do in that first Saturday night's main event. He like blind tags Warrior, legs up genius and steals it. He did! You're right, and they didn't talk about that really on that show yeah never gets addressed again and you know there's the issue that hulk hogan and all of his feuds where someone turned on him he always kind of like acted like an asshole and like (laughs) you watched today and it's like well you deserved it it's like yeah man you freaking grabbed elizabeth and ran off with her i'd be pretty pissed off at you too or andre was getting a trophy and you like bulldozed over him and started like cutting your own promo (laughs) So, like, like Hulk Hogan stealing a spotlight was actually nothing new. And it, it would have been interesting if they would have leaned more into that, I guess. Um, but even Bruce Pritchard, you know, who will defend anything uh, WWF until the end of time, he has even gone on the record I, on his podcast and admitted that this being a babyface versus babyface deal really did have shortcomings. And there was only so much you can do. And we're going to get into it here in a bit. I know the promos that they were cutting on each other on the syndicated television, they just lacked substance. There was no personal issue. It was just these like vague themes, and that wasn't good either. But I know there is something else we need to get to uh, before that. While this is going on, in mid-February, it comes out that Vince McMahon is planning on getting into the bodybuilding world. Supposedly, uh, Vince is going to start up a magazine called Bodybuilding Lifestyles and, uh, and try and give Joe Weider uh, a Don, the, the Don, uh, the, the head of the IF, uh, IFBB, yeah, uh, a run for his money. Vince has generally been successful in wrestling, but his outside ventures haven't been so profitable, says Meltzer, which... Yeah. <laughs> We're still repeating that quote here in 2020. Yeah. Uh, Look, reading this, I'm gonna. I wouldn't advocate Vince get involved in the bodybuilding world at all. But had he simply just stuck to a magazine rather than an entire bodybuilding federation, I'm guessing this would not have been nearly the money drain and disaster that it ended up being. Yeah, I think that's that goes without that. That's. Goes without saying, and I think like as as we as this story develops over time, and again, this is really going to kind of uh, stick in uh, in part two and three because this takes a bit of attention away from Vince at a time when he desperately needs to have uh, his hands on the wheel in the WWF. Rather quietly, over on this same kind of subject, at the end of February, the Detroit Press uh, does a story on the WWF. This was in line with the main event, which is obviously, like we said, was in Joe Louis Arena. But rather than uh, give a glowing review for that show, they talked about how the WWF teaches bad values to children, about racism, sexism, intolerance, steroids. Uh, there's that buzzword. Later that week, superstar Billy Graham appears on the news in Southern California on KNBC, 
and gets a ton of attention talking about steroids and drugs in the WWF. He even goes so far as to estimate that 90% of the roster was currently using. Uh, the two pieces combined generate enough static that even Entertainment Tonight does a show on uh, March 7th with Billy Graham and uh, Bruno Sammartino on it. And the WWF is very nervous, very shaky about this. Graham sticks to his estimate about 90% of the people using, but he says people in the business and doesn't single out WWF. Uh, they were terrified he was going to say a lot worse. And this is something in The Observer that I really like, where Meltzer uses this line. Having him directly say that he saw, or worse, shot up one of the leading superstars, in particular one of the big two, would be devastating public relations-wise to a promotion whose prime audience is kids. Which is just, he knew, he knew what was going to come with Graham saying he shot up Hogan. Yeah. And it's really funny to watch this quote, like read these quotes in front of me, that the WWF, which, again, most people, look, the, the wrestling world, there was a wrestling world beyond WWF in 1990. We all know that. But most mainstream people thought WWF and wrestling we're kind of synonymous. It's funny to read that WWF does not care about the quote that 90% of the people in this business were on steroids. That doesn't bother them at all. It was just <laughs> specific names. And, and it does make sense. You're right. I mean, if you if you put a kind of a name and face to the story, it, it is worse. That's Barrett Meltzer is very correct in his assertion there. Uh, and yeah, um, once, you know, Hogan is specifically named, it starts getting very bad for WWF. Yeah, but it's okay because his vitamin line is coming out this week as well. It's at the same time as this all happened, so you know, <laughs> swings cool. and roundabouts. Did you ever <laughs> yeah. try? Did you ever try the whole Kogan vitamin line, Kyle? No, I was never a big vitamin guy. Well, you know, you're probably for the best. Yeah, I, well, I don't know. I'm, you know, I'm skinny fat, as Paul would say. So yeah, but we don't. We, <laughs> yeah, but the same me and time, CM Punk, <laughs> CM Punk, and I, we're skinny fat. Yeah, we, yeah. we don't measure up to the uh, the bodybuilding. Uh, dreams of Vince McMahon and Paul Levesque. I, uh, I'd, I'd steer clear of the Hulk Hogan vitamins. I think if, if I were you, just, uh, just a hunch. But uh, how long did they last? They, I mean, I guess they were they were, they were business, pulled. They, they were pulled because of what happened next year. Yeah. Okay, so they lasted basically a year. I'd, I'd love to hear a testimonial uh, of the Hulk Hogan vitamin lines. I mean, did they taste good? Did they do anything for you? Did kids? I mean. <laughs> That's something I don't know. That's a rabbit hole I've never gone down. But did those chewable kids' vitamins that were popular at this time, you know, it wasn't just a Hogan vitamin line. I think I had Flintstones once. Ah, uh, well, Come to yeah. think of it. But was there ever any proof that those did anything? Or was it just like a way that parents could like feel good about their kids? Oh, my kids are eating vitamins. No, I always thought that was, it was one of those just placebo effect. Yeah, it's a nice little gummy sweet. Might be something yeah. to it. Yeah, because I remember it did kind of taste like candy. That's pretty much what it was, right? Yeah, I think it, yeah, that's all it was. Yeah, I don't think it like, it didn't have any like, you know, it wasn't like, you know, like uh, replacing radishes in my diet. It wasn't giving (laughs) me those nutrients. No, no no, no reports of kids ripping their shirts off in the schoolyard or anything like that. Nothing. No, I didn't see any of that. Wildly turning on their friends and then complaining about it afterwards. Yes. <laughs> as, we, as we rally towards Mania 6, a major story on steroids in the WWF is actually penned for the Toronto Sun the week of WrestleMania. So 
steroids and wrestling, that's starting to get a little bit of buzz. The WF finds out ahead of time and gets the story killed, and it causes enough static in the Toronto Sun that the writer almost actually gets fired uh, for even attempting to write this and get it in the paper without them knowing. Of course, there's a vested interest because the Toronto Sun actually co-promoted WWF shows at this time, so they had a financial interest in the Skydome show doing well. Aha. Uh-huh. Yeah. That was an interesting story. I had never heard that before. And again, they they know. So that's the thing. That's the, and that's what makes again next year crazy. They know media on this subject is kind of raising their eyebrows already, and we're nowhere near what comes it, it, when Zahorian gets busted. No, and so yeah, steroids and people who weren't like paying attention to anything like that in 1990. I, I to be honest, I wasn't. I, the first I had heard about the steroid issue. I don't know what it was, to be honest, when I kind of like learned about steroids and pro wrestling. But nationwide, steroids didn't become an issue until Congress acted and made them illegal. And that's something we're going to bring up, I think, in part three of our yes. podcast series. Okay. Is because that, that's late in 1990 where anabolic steroids are listed as a controlled substance along the lines of most recreational drugs. Yeah, so I mean, and that's when, and that's when the, there's a lightning rod. I mean, there have been issues before, you know, the, you know, the Ben Johnson situation. That you know, the incidents had happened where yeah, so, okay, you're right. Public- I, I, I remember that. I, I distinctly remember the story in real time. The story of Ben Johnson, yeah, uh, being stripped of his gold medal uh, for using steroids. Again, maybe it's just because I'm a kid and I like WWF. I don't necessarily make that connection. I mean, it's so obvious now. You watch with your eye. You're like, my God, who didn't know all these guys were jacked up on steroids? And maybe, you know, I mean, Meltzer did, obviously. A lot of people knew. I think it was, we didn't really know about the dangers of steroids. Like, at least nationwide. You know, Meltzer did. A lot of other, you know, some people did. But I think there wasn't the um, societal awareness of the negative surrounding steroids uh, really for another year and then that's when WWE goes up shit's creek <laughs> yeah so uh, but on that subject of shit creek the hogan warrior build from this point forward oh <laughs> very good very good transition there well, oh, I shit's think creek nothing better. is a very good comedy on netflix oh i've never seen it I, I i was very leery to watch it because some of the people recommending it to me um Actually, it was a Ryan Drosty recommendation that put oh. me over the hump when I was like, all right, all right, maybe I should try this out. But people before him had recommended it to me, and I'm like, yeah, I'm not really into these kind of like mainstream comedy shows. Yeah. But I'm like, I'll give it a try. It is one of the very few things that my wife and I can both watch. Oh. So thank you, Ryan Drosty, for recommending that. A great man. Yes. And a great contributor to The Observer in 2003, as we found out, by the way. Yes, yes, and the letters to Meltzer. That's <laughs> unbelievable. Uh, here we go. As we move along to the Warrior Hogan build again. So the problems are starting to mount. Like you mentioned before, Kyle, as they're doing, it seems like at this point, the only real build they're doing is these like studio promos where they're, you know, they're in front of the, the random screen just talking, and with in Warrior's case, for hours. For hours about the, his gods. And what this means, and Hulk Hogan talking about the how he sees the darkness in Warrior's eyes and doesn't know what it means, and whew, this is this is getting a bit rough, and 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 interest cools rapidly 
as the, the, the reality of what this match is actually going to be in the build overtakes the fantasy of it. I am the frustration that your mankind has swept under the carpet for years. But Hulk Hogan, I have creeped out like a slime. I have been deeper than the devil you speak of, Hulk Hogan. And if I ever run in to this devil, Hulk Hogan, then will be the time and place for him. Of course, before that gets proven, Vince does come to his decision. So in mid-March, he definitively makes the call with the Warrior winning at WrestleMania 6 and in theory becoming the new top guy in the WWF. Uh, the reason this kind of leaks, and it does leak, actually the week before WrestleMania 6, Tokyo Sports pretty much writes on the front that the Ultimate Warrior is going to win the title at WrestleMania. Reason being, that obviously we mentioned it before, Vince, and at one point he actually goes to, is it Budokan where he shakes Baba's hand in the ring? I think it might be. Um, yes. But th- there is a joint show with New Japan, All Japan, and the WWF coming up in April. And Hogan at the time was the champion. And when Vince made the decision to go with Warriors champion, he had the kind of, I guess, obligation in his mind to tell Barber that it wasn't going to be Hogan on top defending the belt on the show anymore. It would be the Warrior. And Barber was not thrilled about not being consulted about this ahead of time because obviously he'd gotten all the promotion out. Um, and so Barber just told Tokyo Sports that the Warrior is going to win. He didn't give a shit. And so he gets printed right there. So for anybody who was watching from Japan, you knew ahead of time, you knew the score. Um, yeah, and news didn't travel fast back then like it does now. So uh, my guess is here on in the states, if you weren't reading the Observer, you had the the um, finish was not something you one hundred percent know. Like I, I don't think this leaked. Um, the leak didn't have the penetration stateside that it it no. it would no. today. Wasn't even close to the close. levels of, of Mania Four, where didn't like the WF Magazine like tell? Yes, you the WF Magazine did screw up and put uh, Randy Savage was winning the tournament. Yes, yeah. So and, and this disconnect between what you know, th- these promos that they're doing that just don't seem to land. It doesn't make you want to see the match anymore. It bears out in the numbers. The tickets to the Sky Dome, which, like we said before, they were considered a guaranteed sellout when they got off to that hot start, and they plateaued several thousand tickets were unsold at showtime that were available weeks out if you watch those tvs they're pushing really hard in the last couple of weeks there are still tickets available still tickets available closed circuit for wrestlemania 6 bombs which was not necessarily a surprise it was dead industry in the states but it got a lot of eyebrows raised when it tanked in canada which at the time didn't even have pay-per-view which was another little thing i didn't know um that they didn't even have pay-per-view capability at the time i didn't know that either no the wwf Yeah, come on. I mean, lagging. The WWF had about a dozen closed-circuit locations lined up in Ontario, all of which had to be cancelled. Original expectations, when they sold 25,000 seats in a week, was they would easily sell out the Sky Dome more than a month in advance, and they would run closed-circuit at the Maple Leaf Gardens and Cops Coliseum, which are two 18,000-seat arenas, as well as a few smaller sites as well for the Canadian overflow for the people who couldn't get into the building live. And as it turns out, none of them, not one, end up showing WrestleMania 6. Wow. That is uh, pretty crazy. Now, okay, there's two ways to look at this. One is, oh boy, what a disappointment this is turning into. The other is, were they just like way too optimistic? I mean, that seems insane 
to think <laughs> that they would be able to draw huge crowds at both Maple Leaf Gardens and Cops Coliseum for closed circuit. And Cops Coliseum, that was Hamilton, uh, yeah. right? Okay, so... Hamilton, not so, Yeah. Uh, that seems ambitious. Like, I would be like... I know it's easy to say, I guess, but, like, if that's the plan and somebody tells me, I'd be like, really? <laughs> <laughs> like, that, that, that just seems like a lot to do. I mean, the height of close... So, like, WrestleMania 3 did ridiculous closed circuit numbers. But what were some of the bigger... And, and I don't know this answer. I don't know if you do either. What were, like, the bigger venues they were running for that? And that was a nationwide, that was stateside, we know, that they're running. So my guess is they're running relatively decent-sized arenas across the country. I mean, the idea that you sell up the Sky Dome, and in the same province, you're filling up Maple Leaf Gardens and Cops Coliseum, it's like, whoa. And it's like, because but, Maple Leaf Gardens is in Toronto, it's where the Leafs played. Yeah. So, I mean, that just seems, that was just a kind of a fool's errand yeah. to me. <laughs> A hundred thousand people they were expecting in, in that province alone, and and again, the other locations set up in Ontario that haven't even been mentioned there. Those are the two eighteen thousand seats, but they had other ones booked, so they were expecting like to draw like well, like one hundred twenty thousand people at least to these things. Yeah, they were expecting to beat their crush their own worked number from WrestleMania three. Did, did <laughs> yeah. they work themselves into a shoot? Did they start believing that ninety three thousand number? <laughs> uh, I wanted to back up real quick about the uh, the show over in Japan because sure. this is I think important to note. Hogan still winds up main eventing that show, and we mentioned this earlier, against Stan Hansen, not Terry Gordy, as originally planned. So even though WWF did switch the title, Hogan main events. Because his cool. name meant way more than Warrior uh, at the time. In Japan, yeah. Warrior had like yeah. no rep in Japan at all. Uh, interesting note from the Hogan-Stan Hansen match. As he made his way to the ring, Hansen knocked down ring announcer Mel Phillips. Oh, what a gem. joke here. <laughs> the only thing that would have made it perfect is if he actually kicked him in the face you know yes 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 Mel get off great. my toe <laughs> <laughs> oh superb uh, it was thought at the start of the year to be the biggest money match since Hogan and Andre at Mania 3 weeks before the ticket selling records actually show that the sales for the Skydome event slowed dramatically after February 23rd the date of the angle on the main event Yep. Reference our discussion of folks. This is a sidebar, but like I had to mention the Warriors appearance in Arsenio Hall the, the week of WrestleMania. It was not good. It was it was not good, no. And and you know, even Savage, who in eighty nine had gone on there with like Morgan Fairchild and was just completely in character and completely insane. Even he came off with a, a modicum of dignity with his with his Pete Rose line and his uh just his ability to kind of command the room and be wacky, but with Warrior it's just a different vibe. The people are just He's doing his shtick, and the people are just looking at him like he's just got shit hanging out of his mouth. Like, and they're laughing at him like a goof, like he's just like a circus freak. Bruce, in that kayfabe commentary, said this was noted, and people began to think there's a problem. In addition to those promos, which were a major issue, and I cannot believe that someone internally in WWE did not pull him aside and say, dude, your promos suck. <laughs> and you've got to have some sort of better focus it's one on thing... what you're talking about. You're just going off on these tangents. I want to... Since you didn't experience this in real time, I guess it's a hard question for you to answer. 
going back to something that my my dad, uh, who again not a wrestling fan by any means, but <laughs> I have two vague or I have two vivid stories I remember of him uh, during this Hogan Warrior program. The first I already talked about with who do you want to win. The second being. He was watching one of the Warriors' interviews, and he said to me, oh, this Warriors could become a bad guy now, I think. Really? Yes, and if you go back and watch the promos, it did kind of seem like it, right? Because Hogan's talking about Warrior and his dark side. You yeah. referenced that earlier. I would, again, I guess if you weren't watching in real time, so it's hard for you to say, but like, I wonder if other people were thinking like, hey, the Warriors kind of becoming a bad guy here. And that was something that hurt uh, not just the build, but maybe more so his title win and subsequent reign. They just they got like the, the, the low grumbling and the growling and just talking slower oh, and stuff. Good. Yeah, <laughs> and it's just it, 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 it lays it on pretty thick. And again, there's something about the visual too. There's one way he's wearing like black, you know, a lot of black in his face paint and he just looks more sinister. Yeah, I wonder if people were kind of thinking that. My dad did, of course. My dad, not you know, he's not Dave Meltzer, but you know, <laughs> he's a casual guy who's making observations. So who knows? Maybe there, were, maybe other people thought that. I did not, because I wanted work to win. Like I said, <laughs> he's a babyface to you, no matter what. Yes. The big day comes. It's WrestleMania six. This is a very uh, nostalgically revered show in some circles, even though I, I, I personally don't share the sentiment. Um, it looks like mission accomplished. Warriors the man. But that's far from the case. A 7.0 buy rate was projected for this show at the start of the year when, when, when the positive momentum was there. It comes back at a 3.8 for 495,000 buys. You mentioned SummerSlam 89, Kyle. For context here, headlined by Hogan and Beefcake against Savage and, Ju and Zeus, does a 5.0. So SummerSlam 89 beats Mania 6. Um, and it's just stunning that the match that looks like the biggest stars in the company at the start of the year is just a complete damp squib. Yeah, and WrestleMania 5, correct me if I'm wrong, did well over 800,000, right? Yes. Okay, so that is a substantial year-to-year -year drop. Oh, it's cut in half, yeah. I mean, yeah, that's you're looking at you know three hundred to three hundred fifty thousand uh, drop in pay per view buys from the previous year. Big now, Hogan big. Savage is the best story that they ever told. So, you know, I think maybe expecting Hogan Warrior to be the biggest thing since Hogan Andre again was a fool's errand. One of the things we go back to the pros and the cons of maybe running a little bit longer with Savage, Savage is a heel having to turn on Hogan. It almost feels like it's set up for Hogan to get straight away. But either way, the, the, the attention and the focus is Mania 5. That's the big explosion of the Mega Powers. We've been waiting for it for a year. It culminates there. This, 
there's not a lot that feels like it's really culminating other than this big match with these two guys who are in this this kind of halfway house. Another difference is Hogan Savage was a story built over the course of a year, even longer than a year. I mean, they formed in the fall of 87, but, you know, you have them together celebrating at the end of WrestleMania 4, and then you slowly start planting the seeds of discontent as 88 rolls along. It really ramps up when you start 89, and then they explode. This was, there was nothing in 89 to indicate there would be some sort of Hogan Warrior reaction. Like we said, it was done in a very, very organic and good fashion in the Rumble itself when they started, the, which was the official kickoff of the program. They, they couldn't have done it any better, but it was a, you had that great moment and really not much else. It was kind of like, hey, what if Hulk Hogan Ultimate Warrior wrestled? Oh, okay, they faced off and, and we gave you a little tease of what it would be and that sounds really cool, but there just wasn't a lot of meat on the bones other than that. You just basically had this one face-off, and that was it. And, you know, again, it's easy to label this as a disappointment 30 years later. The numbers are still okay. Eh. I don't know. Like, I want to say that this show is still should be considered somewhat of a success, but when you read it like this, it's kind of hard to make that case. Uh, I, I do feel a lot easier knowing that it was said at the time this was a huge letdown. <laughs> like, yeah, and, and, and based as we'll get to in the aftermath of this show to, to set up part two, the fact that this buy rate came in as it did does lead to some very, very curious and interesting moves uh, when it comes to Hogan and Warrior after WrestleMania. When the numbers come in, do you think the office immediately says, "Oh shit." we should maybe think about plan B and going back to Hogan. Immediately. Okay. Immediately. That's, that's uh, how I read what they do. The focus being on Hogan, allegedly being on Hogan post-match after yes. the Warrior wins. There's a lot of people have said that. You know, the whole thing with, you know, the Warrior standing in the ring, but you got Gorilla Monsoon talking about how Hulk Hogan is now immortal. Is that, early signs of buyer's remorse or is that just hey we're trying to do something for hogan to save face i think and i thought this kind of again this is a retrospective take obviously but i thought that it there was almost a sense of trying to reinforce hogan from the main event that show is more about reinforcing hogan with with you know getting the, the prime spot with buster douglas beating savage blowing that off than it is about strengthening warrior and here, where again, it's you know, Warrior's going to win, but we want to keep Hogan strong. We don't want to lose anything. They, they didn't want to take the rocket off Hogan. And that's the thing, like, that, you know, Warrior wins the title, and that, that shot that's embedded in my brain of Hogan looking up to the sky and wondering why God has failed him in this crucial moment. Uh, yes. <laughs> like, God damn, why didn't he stay down for the leg drop? Uh, yeah. You know, that's, it might be a buyer's remorse thing where they just say, okay, we are going to... And as we'll come to this, this is a pattern. Make them equals. This is not about making Warrior bigger. Yeah, and because the thing is, okay, they didn't know the buy. Obviously, Gorilla Monsoon and, and the creative prod did not know as the show was ongoing that the buy rate was going to be a disappointment. But I'm kind of looking back at some of those earlier numbers you stated where the ticket sales plateaued and you know maybe those at the top of the pecking order were like, okay, maybe... 
maybe we shouldn't go all in on Warrior. And that's why we got, you know, the immortal Hulk Hogan kind of mm. the strength thing. You know, where it was very clear that he was not going to be shunted down the card. He was, you know, we're going to remind you that he's still special too. Yes. Uh, WrestleMania 6, quick word. Because we're going to get the lower in the card, the lower on the card stuff uh, here momentarily, which will be fun. But I'm with you on this WrestleMania. It's interesting that it's not one of the more criticized early manias. I think. Have you always gotten that? Like, I mean, uh, absolutely. Uh, obviously, okay. Obviously, we've just spent two hours criticizing it. But other than that, you know, um, <laughs> that aside. Yeah, yeah. That aside. I, it feels like compared to Mania 5, which I think won worst show of the year, The Observer for 89, and Mania 7, which has all its bad press, Mania 6 kind of doesn't have this rep of being a bad show. We all know that The Ultimate Warrior didn't ascend to the heights they'd hoped for, but the show isn't one of those ones that's like, just dumped on as a whole. And I think that's interesting because I think it's worse than WrestleMania's five and seven, slightly so, not demonstrably so. And I would rank it as like the 10th worst WrestleMania for frame of reference. Mm, okay. I, 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 the undercard, again, we're about to get into that stuff, is one of the worst undercards in Mania history. Yeah, I agreed. And I think that that's probably the issue is that Warrior and Hogan on the night is actually a pretty exciting match. The first yes. time you watch it, and you don't know what's going to happen. It really does work well. Um, and there, there is a line in The Observer from this time, too, which is pretty funny, where they talk about how this is one of the great wrestling shows of all time if you skip the first 13 matches. Yeah, exactly. That's my point. I mean, there was a moment... Like, I've watched these old WrestleManias, like, so many times. You know, because back then, there, there just weren't as many videos to watch. So, like, the early WrestleManias, I have seen just dozens of times. And I don't know when it was, but there was a time I just popped. It was like 10, 15 years ago or something, probably. I popped WrestleMania 6 in, and it is like, you know, again, probably the 15th time I've ever watched it. And I'm sitting through this undercard. I'm like, this undercard blows. <laughs> and I'm just dying to get to the Hogan Warrior match. So, um, you know, when you talk about the WWF in this time period and maybe its shortcomings... I think it's important to not just focus on Hogan and Warrior and how that didn't live up to expectations, but what else is going on on the card? Absolutely. And they had set up a few things, obviously, for this show, uh, dating back a few months. This didn't have a massively strong undercard as it was. The first thing that they kind of do, the first real big angle that they get to is the boss man's face turn. Uh, at the start of 1990, they tape it uh, where he basically turns on DiBiase. He's supposed to... Retrieve stolen property, the million dollar belt, which is in, in Jake's sack, as it were. Um, it was big. <laughs> and then, as he kind of figures out that DBRC has bribed Slick to get Bossman to do it, then all of a sudden the Bossman has a huge moral issue uh, with this situation. Um, you know, the situation where he just left the man handcuffed to the top rope after beating him. Uh, but now he's got an issue with this, and it leads to him turning babyface and, uh, and giving the belt back, which. There was a big move at the time, obviously. They were trying, this is at the time when they were doing three house show tours at the same time. They were looking for a headliner for the C tour. They tried it with Duggan. They tried it with Dusty. They tried it with Piper. Uh, and none of them really worked. So they were trying to give Bossman a shot in, there, in that role here. Yeah. So I think overall, 
turning Big Boss Fan face was a good idea, and it worked well. When you look at all of the performers in the WF in 1990, people who perform, how they performed versus how they were expected to perform, I think the Boss Fan grades out about as well as anybody. I agree. He had I, a good 1990. I, I think by the end of the year, he was as over as much as you could have hoped. When you yeah. do this face turn. I mean, he, he felt like, a, you know, again, he's not going to be someone who replaces Hogan or Warrior at the tippy top of the card. But he was a very over baby face. And um, this worked. I think the angle was a little clumsy, which you sort of spoke to. Uh, you know, he fetches the million-dollar title for DiBiase, but then he learns of the fact that Slick took DiBiase's money and all of a sudden, he has like this huge moral issue with that. Like, I, yeah. I, I remember watching it real time. I didn't really understand if he was mad that he wasn't in on the deal. Like, he, he didn't get some of the money and like Slick got it all. Or if he didn't like the idea of, you know, him being a police officer getting bribed. <laughs> it, it, it wasn't really overtly clear what he uh, did, but it, in the end, it worked. Uh, and uh, Big Bossman had a very good 1990. He did. Not the kind of nitpicking details they necessarily worried about at the time, but I'm pretty sure DBRC didn't DBRC pay Slick to take one of the Twin Towers spots in the uh, 89 Rumble anyway? Yes, he did. Akeem was originally... No- well, I don't think it was ah. ever said who... I don't think it was ever said who was number 30, Akeem or, or Bossman, but yes, Ted DiBiase did pay Slick to get number 30 in the first pay-per-view Royal Rumble. You're right. A nice callback, but yeah, I don't think they cared about that in this angle. And um, yeah, it, it was what it was in that regard. Elsewhere on the show, there were a couple of uh, interesting matches that were earmarked for WrestleMania 6 that never happened. So we have Rick Martel versus Brutus Beefcake lined up for WrestleMania, something that they actually did shoot an angle for on television, where uh, Rick Martel comes out in a very chic raincoat, real style <laughs> that this man had. And then Beefcake comes along and cuts it up, cuts the arms off, puts on himself, dances around like a dickhead. Uh, and did get kind of a huge pop. I don't know how much of that was piped in, but it seemed like it got over well live in the audience. Beefcake doing that. Yeah, we, we mark him, but Beefcake was pretty over at the end of '89, and he was doing pretty good stuff with Savage and and, uh, and Perfect. I mean, yeah, I mean, look, Beefcake is you know rightfully you know became quite the punchline for his WCW run, but this was kind of his height, where he had teamed with Hulk Hogan. Uh, in the main event of a show that did a very good number, that being SummerSlam, like we said before. So um, I think that should be pointed out when you talk Brutus Beefcake. And I wanted to add, too, this Beefcake Martell thing. I had forgotten about the raincoat angle. I watched it after I read your notes. But those prime times that I'd watched, and they leave off a few months before the raincoat angle happened. But post-SummerSlam they had actually started teasing this Martel Beefcake thing. So it goes back even further. Oh, wow. They had worked in the house shows in the fall. Um, they had done these, like, interviews with women in the crowd where they were asking if they, quote, liked Beefcake or Martel more. So this was very much a, a long-term thing. It wasn't just something that they did a raincoat angle and dropped it. They had actually had Beefcake and Martel an issue simmering for a few months, and then it just gets dropped. Yeah, dropped cold. Beefcake Beefcake obviously goes to work perfect, and Martel works the opener against Coco Beware. Um, 
Would Beefcake Martell, given their respective trajectories in 90, would that have been like a double DQ special, do you think? And maybe that's yeah, why that, they didn't do it. It, it reeks of the uh, the double count out, double DQ, the, the, especially gutless finish. Maybe a DQ in Beefcake's favor, something like that, but yeah. Yeah, because both guys were pushed after WrestleMania 6, and, you know, unless if it was... Well, even like if they were going to push both guys after WrestleMania, that was always like a weak finish. Like, for instance, Beefcake and DiBiase at WrestleMania 5, they do... Oh, one of the worst. Yeah, and they have no, they, they had no issue going to that um, match, and, and they just did a lame double count-out finish. Yeah, I wonder how many of those women, by the way, when they were asked, Beefcake or Martel, just answered with Rick Rude. Yeah, no, well, you know, they always it was like two answers for Beefcake <laughs> per every one answer for Martel. So I don't know if they, I, maybe <laughs> they really bullshit. felt that way, or maybe they just taped more with the baby face. I don't know. That's bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Another match that was lined up: Heart Foundation versus the Rockers was on the docket for Mania Six at one point. Unfortunately, the Rockers get into a, a spot of bother. Uh, as you mentioned before, turn up to the February thirteenth tapings black and blue after uh, they get into a bit of a. A, a yelling match that turns into my Genetti beating the shit out of Shawn Michaels, pretty much. Um, they show up to the tapings. I didn't blue. even read this part of your notes. Oh, huh? man. Yeah. Marty doing a number on Shawn, huh? Yeah, he, he beat him up pretty bad. And uh, I think Piper was the instigator to this. As I remember the story, I, I got a feeling that the story goes that, like, Marty was just talking. Yeah, so Marty and Shawn were talking with Piper, and Piper was like, this is Janetti's version of events, so you know I'm not sure how great his memory is, but he he <laughs> he alleges that Piper was basically spending the entire time talking to the Rockers, putting Sean over at how great he was and how he had such star potential, and how he was really going to go places. While Marty's just sitting there like a like a bell end, um, and then <laughs> and then as Marty kind of like chimes in and says to Piper, "Well, hang on a second, this is a little bit insulting to me." Sean kind of lips up and just you know, "Hey, don't talk to Roddy like that," kind of a thing, and and they just get into a drunken brawl where Marty just uh, kind of kicks Sean's ass. So anyway, as they show up to the tapings, obviously just battered, looking like they shouldn't be on television, instead of doing something where, like, you, know, you do an angle where, like, hey, some heels have beaten down the Rockers, they just sent them home for a month, and they were just livid with them. And apparently this is uh, kind of goes some way into the result of Mania 6 where they get jobbed out to the Orient Express as well. Yeah, no nine thugs in Syracuse, I guess, here. Uh, we're no, not going no. to do not that. Needed. Um, interesting quote in the Observer: The two don't want to. This is Sean and Marty, obviously. The two don't want to work as tag team partners anymore, and Vince has asked Marty to turn heel, but it's all up in the air right now. Oh, in the yes. kayfabe commentaries from Pritchard, he states, per February ninety, there was some kind of debate who was the real star, uh, potentially as a single. Between Sean and Marty, I I know now it's so easy to say, oh well, you know, you know, we, we use terms like, well, who's the Marty Janetti of this tag team? I always thought that was unfair, because unfair. if you would have asked me in 1990, who, and again, I'm nine years old at this point, so maybe my opinion doesn't mean shit, but I, I'm not gonna, I wouldn't have been able to tell you, oh, Shawn Michaels is definitely gonna be a huge single star and not Marty Janetti. I would not have had uh, Roddy Piper's uh, vigor. In that debate, I guess. I, I, you know, I mean, it's not like one of them was, you know, positioned as being better on commentary. Now, I will say this. 
Sean did have what I believe is his first ever singles match with Bret Hart on the February 11th wrestling challenge. Now that would have been taped obviously uh, weeks before that they show up to the tape, uh, a subsequent taping black and blue. So this was already in the can, a Bret Sean singles match. So I don't know, maybe some people did think Sean was the better single if he gets that spot. Mm-hmm. Cause we all, we all know that Bret, because they had tried him as a single before, uh, in both 88 and 89, they had been looking for ways to push him by himself. Uh, I wonder, so so that, them doing a singles match and it ends in a double DQ and Marty and the Anvil get involved, it kind of does seem that maybe they were um, going to do a Hearts Rockers match at WrestleMania 6. And while it certainly would have been good, it would have been the best match on that undercard, I think the WWF made the right call in how they booked these two teams during this period. Some people may not want to admit this, but this is absolutely true. The Hart Foundation were substantially more over with the 1990 WWF audience than the Rockers. What do you think that is? So the issue is the Rockers almost from the start were kind of pushed as this plucky, lightweight underdog team. That, you know, like go back to the previous WrestleMania against the Twin Towers. The whole buildup, you had the heel commentators, oh, this team's got no chance to win. And then they lose. <laughs> yeah, it's a fun <laughs> match. But, you know, the Hart Foundation, they were never pushed like that. You know, they were never they were pushed like a plucky underdog team. They were kind of more of a, a kick-ass team. And I, I just think WWF got it right with, um, you know, having the Hearts go on, uh, squashing the Bolsheviks at WrestleMania. I know it's like a nothing deal. But that's the kind of thing that's missing from 2020 WF television, where you want to push a team as the next contenders for a title, and you have them just win in this incredibly dominant fashion on a big show, and it elevates them as contenders. Yeah, and obviously they had designs on that, because on the March 6th TV taping, the Hart Foundation do challenge the tag team champions for after WrestleMania. Yeah, whoever wins the Demolition Colossal Connection match. I just think that the hearts were the right call for the spot they got over the rockers something that's interesting and i know we're going to talk about this in part two when we talk about the tag team division lod coming in and who's going to be baby faces who's going to be heels in some of these feuds something that was kind of interesting with the hearts and rockers on that i I peeked ahead a little bit and i watched that first saturday night's main event post wrestlemania okay uh the one in austin texas where the, the hearts worked the rockers on that show, a tag match, it kind of seemed that the hearts were the ones acting kind of heelish, at least in the build, because they did an interview with Jesse Ventura, and, you know, Jesse always interviewed the heels in the matches on Saturday Night's Main Event, and they were kind of talking about the, quote, pretty boy rockers. (laughs) So I don't think the WWF had really made up its mind about the future of the tag division at that point, but they... As far as, you know, what to do at SummerSlam 90, who beats Demolition and that timeline, they made the right call. The Hart Foundation were very, very over as a babyface team uh, throughout 1990. And, you know, the Rockers, I think, were were a better team, like, to my tastes. But the Hearts were more over with the audience of 1990 World Wrestling Federation fans. 
Yeah, I kind of, it's kind of a tough one for me. I'm kind of split down the middle. I love the Rockers and I was kind of, yeah, they never really get their their turn to be in the lead role. But to be honest, when you look at the kind of the, the way that the division kind of works out, there's never really a time for them to be the lead team. There's always a team that's more suitable. No, and it kind of sucks when maybe that time was approaching, which is like 1991. They're on their way to breaking up. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, one team that did not get consideration for a, uh, a team that was overlooked is Rhythm and Blues. Uh, Greg Valentine on the road to <laughs> being Ray Orbison. Dyes his hair jet black. Teams with the Honky Tonk Man uh, on the road to WrestleMania 6. Uh, this is a little bit of a, a, a turn for the worse for Greg Valentine. And in other tag team news, the powers of pain get broken up in a rather questionable vignette with Mr. Fuji. You talk about how he's made lots and lots of money. Uh, selling the Barbarian to Bobby Heenan, the Warlord ends up with Slick. So one team goes, one team comes in. Yeah. Uh, so it's, you know, there's always this, it's very popular. We've been talking about stuff that Bruce said, stuff that Meltzer said. There's like this very popular thing now where people who worked inside the company love to push back on fans who think they know everything, right? So I love when I thought something as a kid and it turns out the performer felt the same way I did. (laughs) And with Greg Valentine doing the Rhythm and Blues gimmick, I just thought it sucked like even oh, as a night, like, you you could just tell like this is horrible. Like Honky been around, like it was just like two guys who had been around for a while. It's like what do we do? Yeah, we'll have this lame idea to team them up. And I, I always feel vindicated hearing Greg Valentine talk about how much he hated it, and they really, <laughs> really had to convince him to turn his hair black. He didn't want to do that even. Um, yeah, sucked. They feuded with the Bushwhackers. It's it's not good. Powers of Pain is an interesting deal. So. They they were broken up, I guess, because there was nothing left to do with them, A, and B, the Orient Express were coming in, and that was going to be Fuji's team. Yeah. So I, I don't have an issue with them being broken up here at all, although ironically they had just had their best match ever against the Rockers at that MSG show, that Hogan and Perfect right. made event. Uh, but are you surprised that neither the Barbarian or the Warlord were used more significantly in a singles role. The Barbarian's better in terms of by, in ring. Substantially. I mean, the Warlord is <laughs> like one of the biggest stiffs of all time. But are you surprised that they didn't like, you know, even get like a Saturday night's main event slot against like a Hogan or Warrior? Because you just think with those looks, you, you it, think, it, so, you think man. they would. But I just, I, this, is, this is a real thing. Because I, you know, like you, never really cared for the Warlord. Thought he was a complete stiff. Um, nothing, nothing in there. The Barbarian. It seems like in the last ten years, there's been this kind of revisionist view that the Barbarian could have been something more than he was, and he was. You know, we compared him to the Warlord, and I just feel like this sounds like a very critical thing. It's it just feels like there's no money in the Barbarian. Like he just seems like he's just so plain, and I just I'm I'm kind of surprised that they didn't give him a go because they they go with Bravo as as a big deal later this year, so. Again, if we're comparing him to that, then yeah. But I, I just, I see nothing in Barbarian or Warlord at the top. Oh yeah, oh well, certainly at the top. But I mean, they didn't even get something resembling like a good mid card push, like, like no a or something. Yeah, and I mean, I think the issue with Barbarian is he was 
he was kind of like a mercenary type heel where he needed a manager to do his talking. Yeah. And so, you know, that he wasn't a main event heel character. By the way, I feel that that critical revisionism all goes back to David Bixen's fan, like, loving the finish of WrestleMania six so much, the top rope clothesline against Tito Santana. Yeah, that's Tito. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, he, like, has, like, this errat... I feel like that's where it all started. Like, at some point, like, David Bixen's fan decided the finish of that match was, like, this unbelievable thing, and then, like, all this <laughs> barbarian love has followed. Um, and it is a kind of a cool-looking clothesline, but, uh, look, I, I just think, like, you know, a Warriors feud with the Heenan family in 1990. You know, the Barbarian, I feel like, you know, I, I watched the Saturday Night's Main Event, for instance. Warrior beats Haku on it. I mean, maybe the Barbarian, I mean, maybe I guess that that's too early. You don't want the Barbarian losing on TV that early after he, he yeah. goes with Heenan. Maybe that was the deal. But I just think it's odd that they just, even again, the Warlord, yeah, he sucked. But they didn't really try pushing these guys at all as singles. Yeah. Yeah, it's not so much that they, yeah, it's just that they didn't even try. They didn't even give them, like, they broke them up basically just to fill slots in the middle. Yeah, and, like, not even, like, the real middle. Like, kind of, like, the lower middle. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's uh, it's still a better spot than Buddy Rose got when he turned up. Uh, and he <laughs> obviously comes in. He comes in at the beginning of March, I believe. And uh, when he actually showed up to TV for the first time, Vincent Mann was furious about the shape uh, that he was in. Poor Buddy. He wasn't in good shape. Buddy Rose is a damn was a damn good worker in his time. Oh man, he was great. And we got the blowaway diet, <laughs> which apparently Vince. was loved internally. So while Vince may have been mad initially at how he turned up, oh, according to Bruce Pritchard, the blowaway diet vignettes drew some hooting and hollering on the other side oh, of the I'll camera. Bet they did. Oh, but <laughs> I bet they did. But yeah, that despite this, despite being out of shape, he's great, and so was adorable Adrian. So to hell with Vince's prejudice against great fat wrestlers. I wish we had like a good fat heel now. I know, like an out of shape fat heel. It kind of sucks that they just don't do like they just have their mindset on how. Well, I guess they always have, but now it's like even worse. You know, it's kind of funny that we associate, you know, how Vince's vision, how wrestlers should look with this time period we're talking on, but like. He would never even let someone that looks like Buddy Rose on television in 2020, I feel. Yeah. Well, you got, like, what's, like, the closest? Like, Otis or something like that? Yeah, you're right. There is Otis. And it, what's but funny is, like, I feel Otis kind of gets over because there's no one else like that. Yeah, yeah. precisely. Yeah, it, yeah. We've kind of come full circle. <laughs> a great, a great, a great out of shape guy like Adrian, who can, who's as mobile as Adrian, who can take the bumps that Adrian used to take. I love Adrian Adonis uh, when he was out of shape in in '86. Man, he was fucking great. As long as he wasn't working JYD. Oh yeah, oh yeah. But even then, he would still try and steal the show by that fucking bump when he like goes backwards over the top rope and ends up with his arms tied up. He's yeah, fantastic. Yeah. He's trying to carry this as as far as it can go. Obviously, unfortunately, it's JYD, so you know it's a lot of carrying you got to do, but. Yeah, Buddy say? Rose never got anything close to adorable. At least Adrian Adonis got a real, you know, strong push. Buddy yeah, Rose. Yeah, Buddy yeah, Rose, Buddy Rose uh, got nothing. Not high on the totem pole. So Mania 6, other than that, Bruce Beefcake does beat Mr. Perfect, ends the quote-unquote perfect record, and Meltzer notes a lot of speculation this was Hogan's gift to his buddy. Hmm. Again, as much of a joke as Beefcake became... 
He was a top baby face here. Headlined SummerSlam the previous year. And Perfect had been losing around the horn. He hadn't lost on TV yet, but he'd been losing around the horn. I think he even had lost some house show matches to Dusty in the Build the Mania 6. Ooh, I, yeah, I didn't know that. So, um, speaking about you know, people who weren't exactly svelte in 1990. But, <laughs> so, I think it was time for Perfect to, like, suffer a TV loss. And it's interesting where they were. This was kind of supposed to play into SummerSlam 90, where Perfect becomes the Intercontinental Champion and works Beefcake. Yeah, this kind of this feels like it's done deliberately to move to their plan for SummerSlam. Yes. So you know, and it's not a terrible match. I I, I know it's one of those things that again people can, you know, you view through twenty twenty. Oh my God, this Brutus Beefcake beat Mister Perfect. That's bullshit. I actually don't think it's that the biggest deal, especially because it was a reason to write off the genius. Who gets the haircut after the match, and they slap a fresh coat of paint on Perfect anyway after Mania. Yes, yes, which is good, and and, and moving in the right direction. Elsewhere yes. on the show, Roddy Piper goes through his uh, famed double count. That what we've seen before uh, with Bad News Brown. Piper leaving for Hollywood once again is the plan, according to Meltzer, and he's not on anyone's favorite list in the promotion. So he figured he wasn't going to get the pin here. So uh, obviously, this is probably more famed not so much for the finish, but for the uh, the half black issue. What was Roddy Piper thinking? <laughs> and you know what's crazy? I looked this up uh, on History of WWE. He wrestled Painted Half Black multiple times prior to WrestleMania. This was not a one-time deal. There was like at I'd... least three times I counted where he wrestled uh, Half White, Half Black, including once on syndicated television before WrestleMania six. Huh. So yeah, I'd seen the promo where he's like his face is half black and he's doing uh, he's singing "Beat It." <laughs> oh boy, <laughs> oh boy. Yeah, I don't. I, I thought it was interesting that Meltzer wrote Piper wasn't on anyone's favorite list at this point. I did yeah. not know that. So I think this was the time when they were try- he was trying to get back into Hollywood doing the tag team show with Jesse Ventura. So I think that he yes, was trying to Mania Six. Jesse yeah. says. That's my tag team partner, which when uh, I was, I had no idea what the hell he was talking about. Well, there you go. Actually, you know what? The other thing that we didn't even put in the notes, but was actually the second biggest match on the show in terms of advertising is the mixed tag. Yeah, that was a waste of Randy Savage, who was the original Mr. WrestleMania. If you Big look time. at how Savage was used, Mania's three through eight, there is one that sticks out like a sore thumb, and it's this. Yeah, not even that particularly well promoted, I thought, when we were watching when I was watching this stuff back. No, and, and we're gonna talk more about Savage in part two where he really was. Uh, and how you know, maybe if he could have been used differently. It just this to me was the low point of Randy Savage from from basically the time he debuted kind of until the time he stopped being an active wrestler for the company. Hard to disagree with that. Now, there is one other little sidebar that I wanted to get to. We mentioned the uh, cutting out the middleman with the pay-per-views at the start of this kind of journey on the timeline. There's one more to get to here where Vince McMahon has some problems after WrestleMania 6 getting his money. So the backstory of this is that Jack Tunney, WWF president, the best president since Noriega, according to Bobby Heenan, (laughs) (laughs) 
And his cousin, Ed Tunney, took over the Toronto office in, uh, in 1983 when Frank Tunney died. This is Maple Leaf Wrestling we're talking about. Uh, the Tunneys joined the WWF in 1984 when Vince has taken over the Nova. But the Toronto office actually remains as an independent entity, gaining a percentage of the revenue for the shows that are being run there. Uh, and obviously through the Tunneys, Vince is able to book Maple Leaf Gardens, which was really... I mean, Vince got stampede and he worked with the Tunneys, but the stampede territory didn't do that well for Vince whereas Toronto was a stronghold pretty quick so Vince definitely valued it and by 1989 Vince didn't think that the existing deal with the Tunnies was necessary anymore and did a deal with Jack to basically cut out the Toronto office and Ed Tunney so the Tunnies and the office as it were get cut out Jack by himself is made the head of Titan Sports Canada in a bit of a dick move there cut Ed Tunney out completely so that he basically just doesn't have to pay the uh, the percentage of the revenue in Toronto anymore to anybody, and he gets still the benefit of work with Maple Leaf Gardens because Jack Tunney's there. However, Jack on the take, Tunney. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> A well-earned nickname, as it turns out. Yeah. In the middle of all of this, while this is going on, the deposit for the Toronto Sky Dome, booked for WrestleMania Six, was paid for with a check signed by Ed Tunney, not Jack and not Vince. <laughs> <laughs> At the same time. To kind of protect himself as this started going on, Ed Tunney trademarked the name WrestleMania 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8 for use in Canada. So as a result, when the show is finished and, and there's a lawsuit from, from Ed Tunney and the WF going back and forth, the gate money for WrestleMania gets held up and they couldn't get it out of Canada. The show draws 64,287 people. There were still seats available. Uh, it did not sell out. But the gate was $4 million Canadian, 3.4 in US dollars. And after taxes, a gross of $2.7 million that it took Vince quite a while to get out. It becomes quite a big uh, legal issue. And Vince kind of gets a little bit sour with the Canadian legal system here, siding in his mind with Ed Tunney because he's Canadian. Uh, and he gets kind of so bitter about the whole thing that he doesn't run another pay-per-view in Canada until July of 1996. So I love that sidebar story. International incident would be that pay-per-view. What a way to return. <laughs> Another show that did a terrible buy rate, funnily enough. Yeah. Probably didn't even want the gate from that. <laughs> yeah, a lot of good that would have done. But uh, pretty interesting little story there. And I thought it was Is fun. that the show where Jake Roberts no-shows and they completely bury him for being a drunk? That's right. And they put, like, Henry Godwin in this place. Yes. <laughs> and well, well, Vince is trying. Actually, it's Lawler in character burying him for probably being drunk, and like Vince is like trying to say, "Oh, I'm sure something happened," but like you're you're listening to it, like in the pre- and you're like, "Yeah, Jake was probably drunk." <laughs> well, they bring him back and they do the uh, the Jack Daniels angle at SummerSlam, so that kind of makes sense. <laughs> Which Jake claims he didn't want to do. <laughs> yeah, yeah, who believes that? By the way, I would have done it. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So this leads to, of course, we talked about WrestleMania, we talked about the crowning of the Warrior, and we're going to get into the aftermath and the summer heavily in part two of this series, but just so you can kind of get a, a, a sense for the ebb and the flow of where this went, almost immediately after WrestleMania, you can see there's like this, this, the buyer's remorse, as you mentioned, there's a switch in the programming, and Melton notes pretty much straight away that first weekend of television after Mania, to quickly answer the burning questions, the status of Hulk Hogan is changing daily, it seems. He isn't retiring from wrestling. In fact, the television over the weekend made it clear that not only is he not retiring, he's also not being replaced as the top guy in the WWF. The Warrior will carry the belt, but Hogan is obviously going to continue to be the major draw and the focal point. 
the Warrior Hogan rematch, which was considered a given for Mania 7. Of course, they mentioned the LA Memorial Coliseum a lot at WrestleMania 6. Um, they were originally earmarking the rematch for that show, but there is talk now that based on the poor numbers for WrestleMania, it's hardly a lock for WrestleMania 7, and there was talk about doing Hogan and Warrior at SummerSlam, clearly to move the belt back to Hogan. Now, what is interesting, though, is what they wind up doing on TV the weekend immediately after Mania. So they're, they're, we're, I'm assuming these discussions were you know, happening in real time before some of these interviews were put in the can. What they wind up saying on television, they have Jack on the take Tunny <laughs> saying there will be no Hogan Warrior rematch and both men will continue to live out their separate destinies. Hmm. But on Wrestling Challenge, I think this is the first Wrestling Challenge post-Mania 6, Hogan still cuts a promo promising to go through Earthquake and then Tunney would have no choice but to make him the number one contender. Hmm. So there's kind of conflicting messaging, which I guess sort of reflects what Meltzer was saying at the time, that you know they do have Jack Tunney saying, hey, there's not going to be a Hogan Warrior rematch, but Hogan... You know, still says, well, I'm going to go through Earthquake and Jack Tunney will have no choice then. So I wonder, and this is something we're not going to get to until part three, if they were kind of maybe laying out still some groundwork where they're pump faking you. Oh, there's not going to be a rematch, but they had maybe in the back of their minds a way to still get to a rematch. That's yeah, that's what I mean. Again, this might be a, this is a real kind of in the moment versus hindsight thing. But I saw the promo where Tunney says no rematch. I immediately think they're doing a rematch. <laughs> you're right, because you don't say there will never be a rematch if you're if there's if never going to be a rematch, right? Because yeah, why would you oh, even bring it up? Yeah, like if, if you're not going to do a rematch, you just don't ever bring it up. Yeah, you, you actually move them on to their separate destinies, as it were. Yeah, yeah, but if you say there will never be a rematch, because the match was still like lauded on television as this big thing, whether it was a disappointment or not. And... If you're a fan, you probably liked the match, at least, and a rematch sounds like a pretty cool idea. So it's like a carrot being dangled in front of you, and you're being told, well, you can't, you know, you're like a kid. Don't put your hand in the cookie jar. Well, you can, you can never go in the cookie jar. Well, it kind of makes you want to go in the cookie jar more. Yeah, of course. Exactly, of course. So, I mean, sadly for the WWF, after thinking that this might be the uh, the cure for what ailed them on the road... The title switch does not do that strong right out of the gate. So they open up their touring schedule on April 21st and do very disappointing crowds for the first stateside matches of Hogan and Warrior since WrestleMania. Providence, uh, Rhode Island, with Warrior defending the belt against Mr. Perfect as 4,700 people uh, and advances for all the shows, no matter who is on top, were way down. Uh, so Melter adds it, it doesn't appear that Warrior was going to be popping many houses for at least a few weeks. And when... Just on that alone, where it says that you know, advances are down across the board, it kind of makes you raise your eyebrow a little bit to the idea that they entered WrestleMania 6 in theory with these two huge baby faces, and they kind of walked out with none. They were hot right away, at least. Yeah, now, you do have a note here, and I'm going to let you get to it, that unlike today, post-mania was not generally known as being a hot business period for WWF. No, no. It was it was traditional for after you know, post WrestleMania for numbers to be down. It's, it's usually a struggle. The anomaly 
was WrestleMania 4. We talked about it kind of briefly before. Business boomed uh, for the Savage DiBiase feud after WrestleMania 4. Savage was a top draw all summer long, curiously enough, until Hulk Hogan comes back. In which case, the, it might have been that the, the, the Savage DiBiase feud was out of steam, perhaps. But interesting correlate when Hogan's back. Savage and DiBiase is uh, kind of comes off like number two. But again, they were hoping for the same thing with Warrior being the post-WrestleMania boom, and it didn't happen. Yeah, that's not a good sign. You know, the interesting thing, though, with 88 is, okay, Savage, DiBiase, that's no longer a draw. But then you go right into Hogan Boss Man, and you've got at least a program that's drawing well. Yes. As opposed to 1990, where you don't have like any programs that are drawing well. It's one thing you could say, oh, let's, well, uh, you know, Hogan comes back and now Savage isn't that big of a deal. Well, Hogan's drawing. So it's not really something that you want to like beat yourself up over. As long as you have a program that's drawing well on top, who cares who's in it, really? The problem <laughs> here in 1990 is you don't have anybody drawing. Yeah, not a soul. And, and Hogan, as we mentioned, doesn't take even anything remotely resembling a backseat on television when you watch. He, you, you, he is still the main attraction. Warrior very much singing the backup vocals. That first Saturday night's main event, the one in April that you mentioned uh, of the Warrior reign. Warrior is champion, defending in the death spot on the show against Haku. Well, Hogan goes on first against Mr. Perfect. Never understood that. Yeah. Particular just... booking. I'm sorry to that. Like, that is the absolute worst way you could have had Warrior on his first Saturday Night's main event is in like the, well, it wasn't the last matchup, but it was like fourth, right? And that was always yeah. after. Um, that was always after like a lot of people had clicked off. Usually like the fourth spot was like a tag team match. Yeah, on it was a throwaway. Yeah, yeah throw it, was, away. it was just, it was something that wasn't pushed. Whereas, you know, Hogan would always go on first or second. So, you know, to have Hogan go on first on that show and Warrior fourth was, yeah, I mean, that's just not smart booking if you want the ultimate warrior to take over as your top babyface. If you don't want him to, it was great booking. <laughs> well, it's curious you say that because in the fallout of WrestleMania, obviously, Hulk Hogan is the one that gets the hot new heel on the block to work with an earthquake. Warrior gets stuck in the retread feud with Rick Rude. Now, there are embers of creativity to Rude getting the push that he got as the only man to ever beat the Warrior, the training vignettes with Heenan, the haircut, the new look, the, the, the no Rude awakenings until he wins the title, stuff like that. But it feels like old news. Rude needed a lot more. and it's, It feels like, again, he gets the weak challenger. And this is something that we're going to hit really hard on part two. The way that the summer plays out with, with the Hogan element of him leaving through the summer, Earthquake, Rude, Warrior... Everything and everybody in this company, as we move through the summer, feels kind of cold. And obviously, we're going to get to that in part two, but I do want your thoughts, Kyle. Um, the final thoughts here on the build to WrestleMania, review and reflection on what we've talked about, and again, where we're going for part two when it comes to the fate of the Warrior. Hogan Warrior was the match you had to do, disappointment or not. And like I said at the very top, I think some of those, some of the Warriors' issues could be rectified. Some couldn't. The promos were terrible. Somebody needed to pull him aside and work on that. But they could have done him better post WrestleMania. And I think when people go, look at this stuff thirty years after the fact, say, "Yeah, Ultimate Warrior, that was a mistake." That's an easy comment to make when you don't really dive deep into this stuff and see how Warrior. They never, he beats Hogan, but he's never truly elevated to that top spot. And again, like you said, in part two, we're going to look, I think, at ways 
that you could have made the Ultimate Warrior uh, a better champion. Now, maybe WWF had no intention of doing it. They were, they had just already made up their mind by April, the end of April. Fuck it. We're going back to Hogan <laughs> next year. So who cares? <laughs> Warrior, we're just going to get through this title run and we're going to get to Hogan. But even if you're of that mindset, I don't know why you would want to make your TV and your house shows as lethargic as they did. You know, it's like, okay, fine. Warrior's not going to be the next Hogan. That doesn't mean you don't try to do things to draw bigger houses, to do more compelling television, to have a more compelling world champion. Yeah, they kind of they, they, they set themselves up for the fall and, 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 and what a fall it is. We're going to talk all about it in part two. We're going to look at the struggles they continue to have at the houses, the reasons why uh, Warrior is champion and the alternative options on the card. Uh, things that they maybe could have done to kind of spruce things up and, and, and made for a better fate. Because as we say, what comes of this, uh, there's a lot of mistakes that get made that are pretty severe. Uh, because of what takes place this summer so we got a lot to talk about on part two i'm thrilled with the way that this has gone carl this has been an absolute blast talking the first four months of 1990 i know and you know my god at this rate uh you know we'll be done with this by you know 2021 <laughs> we'll be iron sheep to the ring for WrestleMania. yeah well, what a time though you know we're quarantined who yeah <laughs> yeah well it'll be wrestlemania 36 by the time he gets <laughs> the ring or whatever but you know hey i love this man um i absolutely love this uh, I hope you enjoy. I hope our listeners enjoy it as much as I enjoyed doing it because this was great. And I can't wait to do part two. I've already got my uh, notes started on that, my ideas for an alternate SummerSlam '90, uh, and I can't wait to hit record again with you, Liam. This was great. It was. It's going to be a blast, everybody. Thank you very much for listening. We will be back with part two in short order. So for the great Kyle Ross, I am Liam O'Rourke, and we are out of here. Talk to you again soon. You will never understand it cause it happens too fast And it feels so good inside walking the glass